Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what... Well, well, I've got nothing, so I'm going to ask you a riddle. What is it that no man wants to have, but no man wants to lose? It's a lawsuit. That's an actual riddler riddle for you there, guys. <laughs> I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick. And Andrew Ellard. Andrew, you are back with us, so I'm, I'm thinking about... Was it Kingsman that we it had? It was Kingsman the Secret Service, which was basically just a very long rant, just chopped into sections where you could interrupt <laughs> once in a while. And I'm trying to remember, Seb, were you on that one, or was that a James episode? Um, uh, I'm not sure if I was. I feel like I've been, I, should, I should have remembered or checked this in advance. I feel like I've been on an episode with Andrew, but I yeah, no, it was. Yeah, it was. You no, know, it was. But the, yeah. that's that's the legacy of Kingsman is how much <laughs> it's grafted itself onto the iconography of the world. Yeah. Is yeah, who even remembers? <laughs> I mean, I, I remember because I hadn't seen it before doing that, and then we did it, and I was like, um, yeah, that was all right. And yeah, it's not. I, I felt otherwise. <laughs> grown in the time since yeah <laughs> a movie that had its problems but that was interesting to discuss and this week andrew we're going to be talking oh. about we're going to be talking about batman forever i had to even think <laughs> of the name that's worrying isn't it it's batman the third one you know the not tim burton one <laughs> a title which tim burton described as Kind of stupid, the kind of title that you would expect like a kid to get tattooed on his wrist. <laughs> but it's not... I, I mean, I, I saw that quote as well, but my first thought was, yeah, like, Batman Returns is this amazing <laughs> title. But yeah, so we, we're going to be diving into the third in the original Batman series, but it's kind of a new thing well, in itself, isn't it? I was going to say, let's let, let, let's save that discussion for when we get onto the film. Because, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's going to be a good one today, I think. Um, so yeah, we will discuss uh, the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion of Joel Schumacher's 1995 movie, Batman Forever. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seb to explain to me something that I don't know about Batman 1966. So uh, this this movie is kind of hearkening back to that a little bit but without without wanting to embrace it fully i would argue um but seb i imagine that you probably know lots of things about that series that i don't um and i don't know maybe maybe some fun facts beyond that caesar romero had his makeup painted on top of his Damn mustache it. i was gonna say did you know that caesar romero had his makeup painted onto his mustache <laughs> and i also know that it invented batgirl <laughs> 
Uh, well, right. yeah, it invented so. that version of Batgirl. There had been a Batgirl beforehand, uh, but it invented the Barbara Gordon version of Batgirl. <clears throat> well, did you know that it also invented Mr. Freeze? I did not know that. So he had appeared, the character had appeared in the comics before, but he was known as Mr. Zero. Um, but the uh, the TV show um, sort of re- reinterpreted him. And he, the, the character was, his costume was a different colour and he was generally quite different. He's essentially the same character um onwards but um yeah the tv show had him as mr freeze and you know that that kind of look and that general um character and background and stuff uh comes from batman 66 um i think i've got a feeling i'm trying to think of which other villains were original to the show rather than coming from the comics i'm pretty sure king tut and egghead i don't think either of those had been in the comics before um but miss but um you know they didn't really make an impact or transfer over to um the comics in the same way. That... They're probably in the Lego Batman movie, though, aren't they? Pro- almost certainly. <laughs> yeah, no, in fact, yeah, they are because I've got a Lego King Tut collection. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, one thing, I, actually, one thing I will say that is kind of comics here about Batman sixty six is: Did you know there is a Batman sixty six comic? Um, I, I was that's a, that's a more recent thing, right? Yeah, it started. Uh, it was about five years ago, um, and it, I think it was a digital first um, thing initially, but you can get it in print now as well. Uh, with covers by Mike Allred, who's just perfectly suited to drawing those versions of those characters. Um, they also even did a crossover with uh, Wonder Woman 77. So they did a Batman 66 mm. meets Wonder Woman 77 comic. Um, disappointingly, they haven't yet done a Justice League 97 comic, but I feel like it's, it's only a matter of time. <laughs> Andrew, what was your relationship with the original Batman series? Do you have the to... Batman... God, with the Batman series. I mean, that's that's a kid on, what was it? Cha... So it must have been Channel 4 in the UK? Um, watching it on whatever weekday morning, weekend day morning it was. But at the time, it was just big and colourful and delightful and marvellous. Mm. Um, I can't... I mean, actually, it's... That is that is absolutely that thing they say that that was Batman to everybody until Tim Burton's movie turned up to everybody um, not reading comics. That was Batman to me <laughs> until that episode of Only Fools and Horses, and those are like, <laughs> genuinely my like two childhood visions of Batman. Right, <laughs> and you know we we did talk about this on the um our episodes on the two Burton Batman films, but. The Batman Burton films owe far more to Batman sixty six than Tim Burton was ever willing to admit at the no, time. No, absolutely, um, and and obviously again we'll get into it. But Batman Forever, even more so, is an attempt to harness what Batman sixty six was doing, but in a different way. Um, but yeah, you know, t- Tim Burton li- and and the people around like to pretend at the time that Batman eighty nine was this grim and gritty, serious reimagining of Batman, and it really isn't. I just always keep coming back to the fact that the Joker has got his face painted on a helicopter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it absolutely is, and I'm not necessarily that's a bad thing. I love Batman '89 for its flaws, but, but, um, but it is Batman '66 is where it comes from, not from but the what, comics. What it did do for me was it meant that the next thing I did after I saw Batman in the cinema was go out and buy the Death in the Family trade paperback. Yeah, <laughs> and and you go. Oh wait, Which is, is about this, as far is... from that as you can get. <laughs> totally. And yet, but it's a it's a really good gateway drug. Like, I, mm. if I'd have gone straight from the TV show to that comic, I would have felt a lurch that I didn't feel yeah. so much because that movie was in between. The I'm time. sure I've told this story that... before on the podcast. But when I when I was in um, secondary school, there was some Batman comics in in our school library, and. Um, I picked one of them up and just assumed that it was like some kind of parody or like 
that it wasn't actual Batman because it it like looked really violent and scary <laughs> and depressing, and I was like, "That's so that's not Batman then. That's just some someone's taking the mic here." <laughs> because yeah, I think by that time I'd probably gone from Batman sixty six and Only Fools and Horses to <laughs> the the Burton movies and the animated series. So. <laughs> None of those were the dark, gritty Batman that now everyone is more familiar with. <laughs> but it's the it's the thing I'll always come back to whenever we're talking about Batman, which is the great thing about Batman is that there are all of these valid interpretations. Yeah. Um, ba- Batman is sort of... He, he is the, the malleable figurehead of comic book history. And whatever comic books and comic book movies are like at the time is what Batman is like, either because a major Batman thing has come along and made them that way or because Batman has changed to reflect the times. But you pick up a Batman comic or a movie or a TV show and it is totally reflective of the time in which it was made. And they I are do- all valid versions of Batman. There is no... In- Batman is ludicrous and in- and ridiculous and he's grim and gritty and he can be both those things at the same time or bits of them at different times. I do keep coming back to the thing you said about Lego Batman, which is, no, but that's a completely valid, reasonable, accurate interpretation yep. <laughs> of the character. There's nothing there that you can go, well, hang on, this stands in the face of everything we thought no. that Batman was. I mean, there are a couple of things that, that the uh, 90s movies do that do, but that's more um, uh, kind of moral, thematic things more than anything else. But again, mm. we'll come to that in this film. Lego Batman gets Lego wrong more than it gets Batman wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that in all seriousness. What, how, is, how is he tensing his abs? He doesn't they can't all tense their abs to create that human you can't have their like head sticking into feet are you about to start are you about to start a campaign for a lego batman remake based on your personal interpretation (laughs) of what the text really should be listen because the fans know lego better I've got producers and <laughs> full backing, to front anonymous the backing. <laughs> You've yes. got the money, but you need more money from people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm um, also, I'm they also only have to pledge it. They only have to say they're going to give it. They don't actually yes. have to give it. That's the important thing. <laughs> it's it's not too dissimilar from our Patreon in a way. <laughs> <laughs> you can say you're going to give it, but if you cancel it before it comes out of your account, it's not turning up. <laughs> um, I'm also going to use this opportunity, as I think I do on every Batman episode, to plug Glenn Weldon's book, The Capes Crusade: Batman and the Ride of Nerds and the Rise of Nerd Culture, which is absolutely fantastic. Which I and, still haven't read, even though oh, I loved his Superman book. <laughs> and it, it taught me almost as much about Batman as Seven James have, so that's high praise <laughs> Well, I don't think indeed. James has taught you very much about Batman, so I don't know if that's a ringing in. No, but he's probably <laughs> he's probably scoffed at some things that you've said. Yeah. <laughs> he's taught me which things to take with a pinch of salt. <laughs> okay, we'll move on to the news section now, and... Um, after all of the DCU news last week, not a huge um, well, nothing. I've got I've got no DC stuff, so we're going to be sticking just with Marvel properties. Um, but let's start out with the Marvel Sony properties because oh, Sony, <laughs> to to one extent or another, announced two new mu- two new movies that are in development this week. Um, and the first one is um, it's it's like. All of these things that you that this podcast doesn't want to exist have collided, and Jared Leto is going to be starring in a Morbius movie, uh, Morbius the Living Vampire. Daniel Espinosa is directing. Um, so uh, Daniel Espinosa directed um, Safe House. He directed Life last year. 
he uh, the script has been written by Matt Sazama and Buck Sharpless. They are the writing team behind Dracula Untold, The Last Witch Hunter, Gods of Egypt, Power Rangers, and the new Lost in Space TV series. Now, I don't haven't I haven't seen any of those things. I've seen a lot I of watched, Dan- I watched Daniel. The first episode of Lost in Space, and then didn't get around to watching any more. But it was yeah. it was all right. I'm three or four into Lost in Space, and I'm really digging it. And I don't. It's that it thing does, where I where I deliberately I'm now trying to reconcile it with a lot of very bad movies, and where you go, well, that's that's writers <laughs> not being in charge of movies, and yeah. um, it does an amazing bit- thing with a particular character. That I think a lot of people probably already know, but it does it at the very end of the first episode, and it certainly that was the thing that made me think, oh, I'm going to watch more of this. D- um, is it is it Gary Oldman with multiple? Turning into a spy concert. <laughs> I can't even remember, can't yes. remember what it was. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, I, for a second there, I was like, am I getting confused with Wild Wild West? <laughs> <laughs> um, which, after our Men in Black episode, I've been listening to Will Smith on Spotify pretty solidly for a fortnight. So <laughs> I'm in that headspace. Um, I would like to thank you for putting Nod Your Head back on my oh. playlist this week, by the way. Oh. What a song. I have been nodding my head in the car to and from work pretty much every day. <laughs> it is categorically better than the first Men in Black yes! track, which I already thought was the best <laughs> rap track of, that illustrates the plot of a film. I need to do this on, on every episode. Just invite someone on to validate my opinions from the last one. I, f- I felt very good. I will say, I didn't feel that at the time. In the movie, I was like, oh, well, this, is a, this is not a patch on that previous song, just as this movie wasn't a patch on the previous movie. And then in the years since, I've gone, actually, no, no, this is carrying it. This has got some real welly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do our Men in Black 2 episode now because we'll never do it in reality. <laughs> I have since, since that podcast watched Men in Black 2 because it was on film four. Um, and so I, I watched it and it is one of the, truly one of the all time tossed off sequels like it feels like so little thoughts effort energy has been put into it and um i don't think that you could have any kind of serious discussion on a podcast so that's it for us and men in black maybe we'll come back and do men in black three one day but <laughs> i doubt it um anyway jared leto morbius <laughs> guys oh, anyone else okay. dreading dreading this as much as i am okay so just just to get this part of it out of the way um as much as we scoff at all of the stuff Sony have done in terms of, oh, here's a Spider-Man supporting character or villain, and we're going to give them a solo movie. Um, I don't think a Morbius movie is inherently the worst idea in the world. Um, it's an opportunity to to do horror in the superhero genre, which I know it looks like Venom is, is trying to lean into as well. But it's, you know, it, while there's stuff potentially on the way, like Venom and New Mutants, I think it's fair to say we haven't had superhero crossover with horror um in movies um and i think that's a a, while i'm not a horror fan that's a a a well waiting to be tapped and morbius isn't i'm not a massive fan of the character but if you're looking at spider-man characters that you can take and make the star of their own thing morbius is like the punisher in that he debuted as a spider-man villain but very quickly became an anti-hero and he's got the kind of he's got the sort of the tragic setup of he doesn't want to be a monster. He doesn't want to be a villain. He can't help the fact that he's a vampire and he's constantly searching for a cure for his condition. Um, there's there's stuff you can work with there. I mean, it's a shame that the rights are held with uh, with Sony because he's a Spider-Man character. Because the ideal thing you do with Morbius is you do Morbius and Blade, um, and you you get your your vampire characters. Yeah, together. can 
Um, Can I ask that question of you? Because you'll know the answer to this, Seb. Yeah. As, as someone who thinks that Morbius is Sandman's other name... <laughs> That's what... what <laughs> thank you. What, what he, why is he not Blade? What is the thing about him that isn't Blade? Well, he's quite he's quite different from Blade because Blade is a is a half vampire who hunts other vampires, mm-hmm. um, and Morbius is okay. So so Blade actually came around earlier because Blade actually appeared. Marvel were publishing a Dracula comic, and Blade was a was a character who was introduced to right. be a protagonist type character to fight Dracula. Cool. Um, but. Uh, oh no! Actually, no. Do you know what? I've got this. Just look at the dates now. I've got. I had the dates wrong in my head. Blade came later. Uh, Morbius came first because Morbius debuted in 1971, and Morbius debuted after the Comics Code had lifted the restriction on vampires and other supernatural monsters appearing in comics. Um, and uh, Roy Thomas, who created him, apparently said that apparently Marvel were actually talking about doing Dracula as a character, but Stanley wanted it to be a kind of a costumed villain. So. Um, they they created Morbius instead, and then Blade came along when Marvel did actually publish the Tomb of Dracula series that he became a character that, that span out of. So Morbius is a vampire who does things that vampires do, but doesn't like it very much. Whereas Blade is part vampire and hunts vampires, and also doesn't like that he has the bloodlust. Exactly. Stuff. Yeah, and you know, you know, there's there are definitely similarities, but there are also a lot of differences. Not this least is... that Morbius fits your classic look of what you'd expect a vampire right. character to look right, like. Right, right. But presumably, what God that. I mean, who knows? I'm not going to see this movie, so really, why do I even argue, argue the point? They're not going to surely make him look like a classic vampire vampire, are they, in a modern I mean, movie well, as a protagonist? Well, you look at a picture of Jared Leto, and you look at a picture of Morbius, oh, and it's not going to take point. a lot of work to actually... And this is why, as well, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm starting out by trying to be positive and defensive of this before we just rip it to shreds, but... Um, if you put almost everything else aside about Jared Leto... Um, and if you forget that Suicide Squad happened, and if you forget about what he's just been like in life generally for the last mm. few years, if you just look at the fact that he looks like what he looks like, and on his day he can still be a pretty good actor, mm. then was that a was that a uh, yeah? Um... I, I called I called Reese on this on the minisode as well. <laughs> um, I. No, I I just don't not not for twenty years no, and not in any kind of like full meaty role. I think he's bad in just about everything. Well, okay, I mean, just because he has been bad in everything, he has had the capability at some point in the past to give performances in things that aren't terrible. The only character that I would That's buy him as is, is Dorian Gray because he's like forty-seven years old and he still looks like that. otherwise i'm not buying it i just think if you ignore a lot of context the basic thing of let's make a morbius movie and let's have jared leto play him i can see why that decision has been made because on paper it looks like it would work what you have to do to reach that is to ignore so many things that mean that this project is just doomed from the start because who wants it who wants to see jared leto play morbius I think you nobody. Do, do they Even not the just... fans who liked him as the Joker in Suicide Squad would probably just rather he was playing the Joker in a DC movie. They're probably not going to want to see a Marvel movie because they're all um, DC 
film universe fan weirdos. Do you remember when he he was one of the names being heavily linked to Bloodshot, the Valiant movie that is that you know is is now being made with Vin Diesel? Um, he was heavily linked to that, so it sounds like he's been looking for more franchises pretty actively. Um, Probably because there's something that he can do where he won't. <laughs> there will always be people who will like him. I also imagine he's feeling the the ground shake under his feet at, for the general DC thing well, because we, nobody believes his Joker films. Well, this is the thing. Yeah, you know, we talked about this you know, this insistence that there is apparently going to be a Jared Leto Joker solo movie. But given that they have now started production on the other one, I think yeah. they have anyway, or at the very least pre production. Yeah. Um, uh, the Jared Leto one's not happening. <laughs> we know they, that's not happening. They'll want to keep him sweet in case they want him turning up in whatever the Harley Quinn film yeah. is and whatever the um, the next Suicide Squad is. But also, they might get to that point and then realise, actually, he wasn't the reason anybody went to see that in the first place, was he? No, once you've got, once you've had separate movies starring Will Smith and Harley, and, and Harley Quinn and Margot Robbie playing those same characters again and they're doing well and people are excited yeah. because of those characters... I'll probably probably tell you what you need to know. Yeah. Um. The the Daniel Espinosa of all this as well. I I it it doesn't inspire confidence. So yeah, the the movies of his that I've seen: Easy Money, Safe House, Life. Very very kind of middle of the road. Oh, I thought Life was absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. No. It's nice. I like. I like it when they announce a movie that I already know I'm. They're gonna. I'm never gonna get interested in. <laughs> so I can just skip straight through this. It's. I love it, announcing a film that's not going to cost me money. Why not? Yeah. Okay. Um. So this this might be another one, Andrew. Um. As well as um announcing that this Morbius movie is in development, uh, Sony are also developing a movie based on the character Silk. Now, Seb, this is a, a, a like a rarity, but I read probably the majority of Silk in Spider-Man comics. You've probably read more Silk <laughs> comics than I have in that case. I've, I've read, her, intro- read her solo series. Oh, I don't. Well, maybe, maybe not. Then I think I've just read all of her Spider-Man appearances. Oh, okay, fine. Uh, but I, I read, um, <clears throat> I read the or the kind of the arc that introduced her, and so she is. Basically, a girl who's in Peter Parker's class at school who also happens to get bitten by a spider on the same day, right? Yeah. And she got but, bit by the same spider. Yeah, but we she was introduced in 2013, I think. So she's a, she was a massive retcon. Yeah, by, yeah. by Dan Slott during his run. And um, the way the way that uh, the way that I read it anyway, I kept expecting to get to the point in the story where you find out that. Oh no! That actually, like, I don't know. There's been some kind of manipulation of of reality uh, okay. you know, or something do you like know that. Why they wouldn't have done that? Because they'd already done that with a character who is also involved in uh, in her storyline. So there was a character called Ezekiel um, who was introduced by uh, my favourite writer, J. Michael Straczynski, in his Amazing Spider-Man run. Uh, which and as I've said before, while it does go off the rails, there's there's good stuff in J. Michael Straczynski's. I like that run a lot. Um, it's I mean you, you you can't you can't say anything positive about anything from Sin's past onwards, but 
um, up until that point, up until the point Remitter Jr. Yeah. leaves, there's there's good stuff and there's 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 long term storylines that generally pay off, and it's a it's weird that the, the, his run carries on after that because it kind of feels like it reaches an end point with the Ezekiel story, and then he yeah. doesn't done sin, does sins past, which is just for anyone who Ouch. doesn't know, that's the storyline that retcons that um, Gwen Stacy had secret twins with Norman Osborn. Uh, and I'll just let that sink in for a moment. No, not good. Not good. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, so there was a character called Ezekiel. A mysterious guy turns up at the very beginning of Straczynski's run, who's an older guy who has the same powers as Peter Parker, and who's this billionaire, um, and basically blows Peter's mind and blows Peter's world wide open because he presents the possibility that Peter is not the only person with spider powers, and that this is a thing, a totemistic thing that goes back centuries and all of that stuff has been developed on since and things like spider-verse the villains in spider-verse like morlin and his family um they originate in that run as well because the Which... reason ezekiel turns up is that morlin is after him and so becomes after peter but anyway so the bit the big kind of revelation there is that actually ezekiel's lying about a lot of stuff and that he actually went and sought out the spider powers and like stole the power off somebody else and then was using peter to divert morlin so that morlin would kill peter instead of ezekiel so having done that I don't think they'd do that again with another spider character but what they what what slot did do was introduce the background that the reason why cindy disappeared immediately after sorry her name's cindy moon by the way i don't think we've said that before the reason she disappeared after getting bitten by the spider was that she was found by ezekiel straight away and and he raised her and trained her but in captivity so first point uh more than i thought 24 hours after reading the uh jared lisa news thought that that was the movie they were making uh, <laughs> yes very 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 similar character designs and i and more than morbius i confused those <laughs> yeah. two names uh now i've been cleared up on that um did they ever figure out a way seb to make silk interesting because when i was reading the comics <laughs> she wasn't you would have to ask somebody who has read her <laughs> solo series, which I, I, I've i seen people say was actually good and enjoyable, and, and Robbie Thompson, who wrote that, is a good writer. Um, I imagine that she probably was made quite interesting because she has got a fan base, definitely. I, I think, again, look at this, being positive about Sony twice in a row. This is an interesting movie. If you're going to pick one of these Spider Family characters, take one who can actually exist pretty much independently because although you've got the thing with the spider bite happening at the same time firstly you can take that part out of her origin and just have her be bitten by a spider on a different occasion it doesn't have to be in the same room as peter secondly not much about her character or history is wrapped up with peter at all so she's not like venom where you have to have that that whole life of hatred of peter parker and spider-man to make venom work um and she is a minority female character because uh, she's asian american so um i think if you if you if you have to do a a spider-man related character as a solo lead despite the fact that she's relatively recent she hasn't got a lot of background hasn't got a lot of name recognition i think it's a really good choice and i guess I'm it's just... a blank canvas that it doesn't but there is that it doesn't well. matter if she's not interesting in the comics because no no one knows anything about her anyway. So one, one, she's a bit of a black canvas. You can put stuff on. Two, there's not legions of fans who are going to be really pissed off if you do anything with her. The kind of people who are fans of Silk as she exists now will probably just be delighted that there'll be a movie and probably whatever they do with her, they'll be on board with. I'm I mean just that in a nice way, not that they're stupid and naive, by the way. I mean that they're not Star Wars fans. 
I'm just reading about this online. That apparently the character was technically in Spider-Man: Homecoming. So there is a there is a character called Cindy, um, who I'm not sure whether she got she's got any speaking lines, but I think she was credited in both Homecoming and and of Infinity and, and, War. And Infinity War, yes. Um, now. I would be very surprised if that actress was the one that they're giving a solo salt movie to, but it it might be that Sony just hadn't decided what they were doing <laughs> with various characters, I guess. I mean, you know what? So much is going to come down to because we don't know so much about the the Sony Marvel Spider-Man deal as it currently stands no. with the MCU and stuff. So much will ridiculously some things hinge on Things like whether Tom Holland turns up for a cameo in Venom or not. Yeah. I, you know? I mean, so I, I, we mentioned this in the podcast recently, but I think everyone just got caught up in the excitement of Spider-Man in Infinity War and forgot to really like question how that had happened. Because as far as we knew, when that deal was first done, the idea was no money is exchanging hands. There aren't any complicated contracts. It is you get to use Spider-Man in the MCU and in return you produce our Spider-Man movie. Yes, we finally get a good Spider-Man movie yeah. again. And you can so it takes place in the MCU, but essentially you're helping us make it and we are keeping the bulk of the we keep well we're Sony we're keeping the money for it. Yeah. And they've gone on, they they did that. He was in Civil War, so they got Marvel got their appearance. He then got the solo movie and Sony got to benefit from having Robert Downey Jr. turn up, etc. But what's the deal now? Yeah. Spider-Man will have been in two subsequent Avengers movies, or one probably one in a bit, I imagine. Um, he will have had another solo movie, and then there are all these spin-offs that he may or may not be cameoing in. Like, what could Marvel have seeded ground? That they say, okay, yeah, you can you can link all these spin-offs to Homecoming. We won't have I mean, th- them in the rest of the movies, but I think they'd be nuts to let it happen. But it, uh, you know, they're already uncomfortable. I think with the Marvel TV Netflix relationship, um, the idea that they'd they'd let that happen again, essentially, but on the big screen. But who but how knows? Much, like, how much is Spider Man worth? Yeah, absolutely. He got, I think, the probably the. I'd argue the most memorable moment in Avengers Infinity War. <laughs> well, that, I mean, he's been very valuable in the ensemble, but it's very hard to argue that the MCU wouldn't be doing basically the same amount of business without him, yeah. weirdly. Yeah, um, But there is a cultural value that I think Marvel understands. Marvel is one of those companies that does seem to understand that there's a that your sequel doesn't necessarily come from the box office of the first movie. Your sequel comes from how interested everyone is the, in the weeks and months after and talking about mm. it. You know, that, that, that there's a thing that Buzz qualifies for that isn't quantifiable as cash. If you guys had to guess now, does Tom Holland make a cameo in Venom? I'm saying no. No, yeah, I don't think so. See, I, I, I feel like they're gonna find a way to get Tom Holland in there, but it not strictly be. Spider-Man. You know what? You know what, what I, I would mean? believe. You know what I would believe is that they they would license a clip from the movie and put it on a TV and say that's news footage. <laughs> I would believe that level of involvement. 
that would be amazing. Or yeah, or somehow find a way. I was going to say somehow find a way to mention his name, but you can't really because it's not like he's a photographer at the Daily Bugle or whatever. So you know, um, or someone tries to, to mention Spider-Man. I'm mentioning Peter Parker's name. But, someone yeah. says his name and sneezes midway through or something like that. Um, what about an Aunt May cameo? <laughs> She's visiting a deli or something as as uh, as Eddie Brock runs past. Uh, who know? I, who know? It's it's going to be interesting. Is Venom? I don't think we are particularly looking forward to it based on the trailer, but it's going to it's going to be interesting. Um, we'll I will say that, film that exists. Frankly. The second the second trailer made me kind of go, oh, I get why this is interesting for that leading man to want to play. Oh yeah, yeah. That, I got, there yeah. finally was at least a little bit of like, I found the interesting thing about this movie. <laughs> And yeah. we've also found Jenny Slate mispronouncing the word symbiote. You are, that's one of those things, Seb, that you will never be able to get over. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's stick with Spider-Man because the um, title of Spider-Man Homecoming 2 has been announced. Marvel did a cute thing where Tom Holland posted an Instagram video where he accidentally let slip the title of the sequel because that's a running joke that Tom Holland leaks details, and it's going to be called Spider-Man Far From Home. So uh, we kind of were thinking that they would go Homecoming and then maybe something like Spring Break or... The uh, rumour was Field Trip. Field Trip, yeah. We- and I th- I actually thought that was pretty good. I, th- yeah. I think that's better than Far From Home. Yeah, actually. Far From Home, because... So what, what are you going to call the, the third one? Spider Man well, Homecoming far from yeah, back back home. <laughs> back homecoming. <laughs> well <laughs> look home lost. Like there is it is a poss- possible that they're trying to tenu and no, it's not possible. It's clearly what they're doing. Tenuously link the word home mm. to the second yeah, title you're right. so I mean, that you go Spider Man home something that else. That doesn't feel like the part of homecoming that they should have no! themed. It should have been the school part because then then, totally. then the third film is obviously graduation. Yeah. Um and yeah, field trip rolls off the tongue. It, it conjures up the high school imagery that you want to associate with Spider-Man. That that fun high school feel. Why didn't they do that? They're idiots. I mean, it's possible that there is going to be some huge thematic thing about you know being cast adrift and being on your own and blah blah blah. Yeah, like that there no, is I... that the Avengers are far away. You know, Tony's not in this one. Well, you know, he's whatever. Dead. But <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. but. But I don't know, unless I can't believe, based on the first movie, I can't believe it's going to have that kind of heavy thematic thing where you go, ah, because really, was the, fir- was the first film about Homecoming, wasn't it more a pun about how the MCU gets Spider-Man again, felt, he's come home? Felt yeah. like it, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, let's. we probably don't need to get too hung up on the title, because, no, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not going to be much. the MCU's record for titles, um, Thor Ragnarok, is not about Ragnarok for a significant part of it. Um, <laughs> because they announced the title before they knew what they were doing with yeah, the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, the Captain America ones, I mean, you know, Civil War is Civil War, but it's it, particularly when they draw titles from the comics, it's like, well, they're not actually adapting the comics, you know, that closely. Age of Ultron being a prime example is just, oh. well, Ultron is the villain, so we'll call it Age of Ultron because that's the name of a comic that had Ultron in it. Also, we should we should bring back up um, Captain America Civil War should have been called Captain America the Winter Soldier. And Winter Soldier <laughs> could have been called Civil War. It actually oh. does work. It's yeah. literally Cap going up against, up against S.H.I.E.L.D. It's literally, it's, that's the Civil War. Yeah. 
Well, Captain anyway. War should have been called Avengers Civil War, but... Well... Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Spider-Man, Spider-Man Far From Home, and, um, yeah, get excited for Jake Gyllenhaal, I guess. I don't think I, he's. I, I don't think I, he's I, been officially confirmed. But we were talking about this with with Michael Keaton in the first movie. I think it was reported that he turned it down twice, and then suddenly they were filming, and Michael Keaton was in the role. <laughs> so maybe they just won't tell us that Jake Gyllenhaal has signed on. We just have to kind of just assume that that's happening, and we can all be very happy about it. I'm. That's that's the that thing. Seems that's, solid to me. Yeah. That seems good. That's the thing that I'm. I am the most excited about. And I did read something somewhere, I, I don't know whether I've made this up, but it, that seemed to vindicate my idea that he would be kind of like the front man for another villain. Because they're oh. they're building a Sinister Six in that universe. That The Marvel movies do not keep villains around, and the Spider-Man movie True. conspicuously did. Uh, the, the third movie well, is going to be called the, the Sinister Six Go Home. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the coming of the six. If you've got Mysterio, you've actually got not two but three members of the Sinister Six because we've got Scorpion in there. Yeah, and then you have I don't know Norman Osborn played by Tobey Maguire pulling the strings. <laughs> That's four. You've got, got a, what, Octopus did, played by you, and you had the Tinkerer and the Shocker. I can't remember which one survived, but they were all around. You've got um, you've got Donald Glover. Oh yeah, who could be playing what's his face? I've just thought of an absolutely perfect Doctor Octopus casting, but it's someone who's already been in the MCU. Who is it? Toby Jones. Oh yeah, yeah, that would be good. I was. I, I'm also excited for that Spider-Man too because the director's coming back. I'm totally on the opposite side <laughs> which, to which Joe on this. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know. The running gag is basically: was there ever even a director in the room for this movie? I know. But I see thematic things that cross over from Cop Car to that movie. And I still think that Spider-Man Homecoming has one of the tensest movies in the MCU, in all of those movies. Oh, there, there, is, um, a, there is a ten-minute stretch that is fantastic when when Keaton figures out who who Peter is. Yeah. And that, yeah. that, that ten-minute stretch is absolutely sublime. Unfortunately, ev- everything that follows it is horrible. <laughs> no, 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 it, it is. It's bad. No. It's real bad. No, 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 no. I don't think you can call it that when we're about to discuss what we're about to discuss. <laughs> and we're about, well, and what we're immediately about to discuss is another Marvel movie that is getting a sequel. And this is great because Doctor Strange 2 has finally been confirmed. It's going to happen. And hey. a lot of people for a while were a bit skeptical about whether it was happening. Um, Except when we were kind of, when James and I were doing a mini-sode at one point and we were trying to go through, okay, so if Marvel does Phase 4 and they've got, I think they had like 10 or 11 announced dates and you try and line them up and you go, actually, of the franchises that we actually expect to continue, they've kind of got like five or six and then and then they really are having to start new franchises, kickstart new, bring in new characters that we that we've barely seen. Mm. Um, it would be it would be crazy to cast off Doctor Strange, um, and especially crazy after how well he was received in Avengers: Infinity War. Mm. Because it, I feel like anyone who liked, well, so I really liked Doctor Strange, but what I liked was the movie rather than the character, and what I really liked in 
in Infinity War was the character. So, um, yeah, you put those together. Doctor Strange 2 with uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor actually get going full-on villain. Yes, please. I'm I'm yeah. I'm, a, I'm kind of at a, a height of feeling well inclined towards Benedict Cumberbatch at the moment, but the reason for that is that over the last couple of weeks, I've mainlined listening to basically the entirety of Cabin Pressure, uh, the Four <laughs> sitcom with with him and Roger Allen, uh, and it's wonderful, it's brilliant, it's uh, I love it so much, and anyone who's never listened to it, go and find it and listen to it because it's fantastic. Uh, but he is great in it and and really likable in it, um, and and funny. Um, so, I, but he is definitely one of those people who I come and go on, depending on what he's doing at the time. Um, but yeah, I'm 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 well inclined towards him at the moment as a result of that. And I, I'm a little bit similar on um, Scott Derrickson, whose movies I've kind of like that I've yeah I've yo-yoed on a little bit. I I think there's stuff in Sinister that's excellent, and um, but I, I really didn't care for Deliverance from Evil. Um, and then Doctor Strange, it just—I just felt like he—he he works really well within that whatever well, the construct is that Marvel puts a director into. Have you seen his tweet today? Uh, today, as we record it, Friday. Um, uh, He—he's put me in a good mood with him as well because he tweeted a screen grab of Elon Musk having posted a picture of Doctor Strange on Instagram and uh, quote tweeted it with the words, "It's not about you." <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, are you uh, are you looking forward? What are you looking forward to more, Spider Man Two or Doctor Strange Two? Oh, I mean, I feel like I feel like Spider Man Two is such a known quantity that it's it's more exciting than Doctor Strange Two. I feel like Doctor Strange Two could be like Sam Raimi's Spider Man Two oh. in that. Okay, there you go. You see, I told you, I told you a Doctor Strange story that fits within the MCU and has little moments of kind of reaching out for more bizarre weirdness than you would normally expect to see. So now everyone says they like that and they like the character. Can we go off and go act- go actually hard at this? Yeah. I feel like there's some room for experimentation. There's some freedom that the first one's success allows. He talked about, um, Scott Derrickson at the time talked about um, early drafts of the scripts. He wanted to include the character of Nightmare and do like dream dimension stuff as well once you got once you got later into the movie. And that sounds like something that you could work into. You could sure. work into a sequel. I mean, uh, and I, I um, got into the Jason Aaron Doctor Strange comics after was it either after or around that movie um, and kind of really fell for the world that he showed of Doctor Strange. And um, yeah, I just, I, I, I really want to see, I want to see more of it. What I would like that franchise to do though, is probably a little bit like Ant-Man and the Wasp has been forced to do kind of reassess how it works its female characters in, uh, mm-hmm. because that was, I think, um, a weakness of the first movie. Um, yeah. Obviously, Tilda Swinton aside, but Tilda Swinton playing a very androgynous character. Um, I wouldn't like to say, oh, don't put Rachel McAdams in the sequel. Maybe your big challenge, Scott Derrickson, is figure out a way to make Rachel McAdams brilliant in the sequel. Yeah. Uh, that's that's my big ask from it. Other than all of the other stuff, which is to make it weird and awesome again. Well, he was very good about owning up to that that kind of the gender failure of the first movie in retrospect, wasn't he? Then the kind of the whitewashing problem as well. Yeah. Um, it's rare to see somebody kind of concede 
that kind of stuff so straightforwardly and publicly. Mm. And I feel like, if nothing else, you go off and do reading after that, don't you? You go off and look at your own work and you go, ah, oh, yeah, no, I, I see what I haven't been doing. Um, yeah. So that's kind of interesting in itself. The anti-Deadpool too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> God, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's it for the uh, comic book movie uh, news this week. Um, we'll move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Batman Forever. Uh, but first, we'll take a quick listen to the trailer for the movie. Riddle me this, riddle me that. Who's afraid of the big black bat? In an uncertain world, in a chaotic time, justice wears a mask. Do you like The Office? And do you like hearing me, Cinematic Universe's Seb Patrick, on podcasts? If so, then you might just like Mifflinfinity. Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. Mifflinfinity is a roughly fortnightly podcast in which I look at every episode of NBC's modern classic US sitcom The Office in chronological order, discussing the episode playing in clips of some of the best bits, and just generally talking about how each one stacks up in the wider context of the series as a whole. Sometimes I'll start a sentence, and I don't even know where it's going. I just hope I find it along the way. Whether you already know your agent Michael Scarn from your Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration, or if you're watching along with the show for the first time, hopefully you'll find our convenient half-hour chunks an enjoyable listen. I'm not superstitious, but I'm, I am a little stitious. Find the show on iTunes and other podcast directories at mifflinfinity.podbean.com or on Twitter at mifflinpod. I knew exactly what to do, but in a much more real sense, I had no idea what to do.
Right, guys, I want to start out by asking you a question that is posed on the special features of the Batman Forever Blu-ray. Riddle me this. Why is Batman Forever? (laughs) Uh, Why is this movie? (laughs) Because Tim Burton didn't want to do it anymore. (laughs) So it sounds like a lot of things, doesn't it? Tim Burton didn't want to do it anymore. And then kind of Michael Keaton didn't want to do it without Tim Burton. But at that point, the studio wasn't that bothered about Keaton anyway. Seeing the lower half of his face, yeah. (laughs) And um, basically, the Batman Returns hadn't done the numbers at the box office that Batman had done. And the studio took that as, well, it was because it was too dark and it was too adult. So we want to go in another direction with this one. And I think probably in a similar way to what the Ninja Turtles franchise did in the early 90s, which was... Even though the first one was kind of a big success, they went, well, we could probably make even more money from it if we take out all of the adult stuff and make it a bit more accessible. I guess ostensibly this is a less dark movie um, than than Batman Returns, but it's absolutely bananas. Um, it's, <laughs> it a, is, it's an insane movie. It is absolutely a movie at war with itself. Like, it's so in conflict with the things it's trying to do. It's trying desperately to be more kid-friendly, but the the cut that got released in the UK had to be hacked down to get a PG certificate, which even the makeup of Two-Face they had to edit around. If you get the DVD now, it's the, the fully restored 12 certificate version. Um, it's trying to be more silly and kid-friendly, but it's... It's got this much more, more like linear gothic attack. Ah, I know. If we put big statues in Gotham, big statues equals gothic, doesn't it? <laughs> like, and this this weird like the the science fiction plot is like a Doctor Who plot. Oh, there's a mad lunatic on an island who's sucking brave waves from the population, which doesn't reconcile at all with any version of anything else that's going on in any of the other scenes. And then Schumacher did. I re- I read a thing where he said he wanted to do, he wanted to take do that gothic city thing, but he also wanted much more neon, neon like it's um like it's Tokyo. And it's like, well, Tokyo doesn't sit on top of gothic particularly well as an aesthetic. Aesthetically, the city of Gotham here is just everything. Hey, kids, remember glow-in-the-dark paint? Because <laughs> this oh, film does. It's the, street, the, the, the street lamps are black lights. It's really... <laughs> I mean, that is a... You said something about you know this film being less dark than the Burton films. At least the Burton films have got... Well, no, this film has got some scenes set in the daytime, but so much of this film takes place at night in places where you can't really see what's going on. Much more so than the Burton ones, which I think are, you know, dark maybe tonally in places, but, you know, visually are quite bright in places. (laughs) This this, this film's got a lot of glow-in-the-dark paint, but it's also got a lot of dark... Andrew and I were joking about this while we were waiting for you to log on Skype earlier. Um, this movie was nominated to three Oscars for sound effects editing for best sound, but just insanely best cinematography. <laughs> Stephen Stephen so Goldblatt was nominated for best cinematography. I mean, the cinematography the is Oscars wretched. It's right. So <laughs> the very, I mean. 
We've talked about this. You it, uh, even um, Gotham, the TV show Gotham, realized realized a very simple way to do cool or to do effective cinematography with Two Face. You can just light like one half of him, and <laughs> you can kind of show a light side and a dark side. It's like it's you know it's one on one kind of stuff. The introductory scene for the for Two-Face here, and bear in mind, one side of his face is normal flesh-coloured, the other side is purple. He's bathed in red lighting, so when he actually turns, and it's the big reveal of the other side of his face, you're like, uh, yeah, I guess. I guess. It takes, a lot, what... it takes a long time for you to actually get an, a proper look at what See, Two-Face I... looks like. I think that's what the BBFC first responded to, was when he first turns, when you bathe him in red light, what he looks like is, oh my God, his skin's falling off and those veins are really thick and (laughs) and noticeable. And actually, it's supposed to be this comic booky colour scheme, but because it's compromised by the lighting choice, it looks way worse than it actually is. I mean, I say worse, obviously, the fact that he's got this neon-coloured face isn't like a really great creative decision. But it looks nastier than it turns out to be. We should talk about the the weird parallels that this podcast... So we've gone back-to-back mid-90s Tommy Lee Jones on the podcast from Men in Black to this this week. Uh, Completely uh, accidentally, we kind of realised as we were doing Men in Black. Um, But also, uh, Rick Baker did the the design of Two-Face in this, which... You know, I I couldn't lavish enough praise on Rick Baker for what he did in... um, it, with Men in Black, I guess you're given the benefit of doubt here that he was responding to a brief. Well, of course, <laughs> you you only you only ever do you know nothing nothing in Men in Black isn't Barry Sonnenfeld approved aesthetically, mm. and nothing in this movie isn't to Joel Schumacher's taste. Mm. So you so you can be the best costume designer in the world, but if he says put nipples on it, he's putting nipples on it. <laughs> um, I, and Joel, Sh- I, I I find Joel Schumacher's approach to this movie fascinating because we said i said earlier it feels like it is throwing back to a campier version of batman a 66 inspired batman at times and like the, a lot of the stuff that this movie gets uh, gets criticized for and certainly a lot of the stuff that batman and robin got criticized for um is some of the camp stuff um but i i like there's, there's, there are moments in this movie that it, Joel Schumacher is clearly exhibiting a sense of humour. Um, yeah, I'd like the the Robin line about what was it the holy, 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 holy rusted, holy oh. rusted metal Batman. Yeah, that's really funny. The shot of Batman. No, the shot. No, of, I it, I no, it was I, funny. <laughs> In 1995, <laughs> when I was 12. It's it's about as funny as the first time Nicole Kidman catches a glimpse of Batman and he arrives thrusting forwards towards her and she says, hot entrance. <laughs> I mean, the, it's, that, I think that what you're talking uh, about, about humour, I think, is the problem, really, with, with both this and Batman and Robin. And it's like, my problem, my, my big problem with the, with the Schumacher Batman films is not that they try to be campy and funny um because i love batman 66 and and particularly the movie the the tv show to an extent but the batman 66 movie is really really funny um like it, it has deliberate jokes that land as jokes batman forever and batman and robin 
are tr- are trying to do the camp funny version of Batman in places, but they're also you know Batman Forever is trying to reconcile it with the that's the, that's the, the crucial part. It's it's uh, in yeah. it's in places ver- ver- version. But also, they don't succeed. They're not funny when they're trying to be funny, apart from a couple of moments. Now, I'm going to disagree with that a bit because I think they do. When I, I, I think you know what you know, Joe. When you introduce the movies and you say Joel Shack, Joel Schumacher's movie, Batman Forever, this has got Akiva Goldsman's name on it. Yes, <laughs> and. Look, I know you're not supposed to have cultural screenwriter nemeses because he might write a really good movie one day. But <laughs> but the way he approaches basically every property ever from Asimov, because he wrote, what is it? So he did iRobot, he was on. Um, and he, he <laughs> my favourite thing about him. Earlier. <laughs> oh, Lost in Space, yeah. yeah. And my, my favourite thing about him is he took the Dan Brown novels and adapted them faithfully. <laughs> the one time that you should be he's rude about all the other he 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 takes a very generic approach to most source material and then that one he's slavish about yeah. it's a really odd if you want to talk about dialogue gags that don't work it's it's way fairer to to put that on the screenwriting than it is on the directing because i think there's some good directorial camp effort going on here that yeah. works i quite like Batman being um, turned down by Chase Meridian and leaving the room, and he's happy about it because she's turned him down for Bruce Wayne. That's a, and he does. Yeah, that, that, he, that that one's worth clinging on to because I think it's it's Val Kilmer's one good moment in the entire movie. Wow, <laughs> he does a, He he gets that nice little smile, and yeah. it's a total directorial thing. And there are well, there's another. There's the. I mean, I was I was gonna probably gonna I was gonna talk about it when we came to it later, but um, in terms of funny stuff that I think lands, which again, it, and it's visual stuff. It's only a brief scene, and I wish they did it more. But what I really like about the Riddler in this is not when he's the Riddler, but when he's Eddie Nigma, the guy who's obsessed with Bruce Wayne and wants to be <laughs> like Bruce Wayne. And when they're at the party, and he's dressed exactly like Bruce Wayne, and he's got the same haircut, and then Bruce Wayne puts on the glasses, the Michael Keaton glasses, um, yep. and Eddie Nigma takes out a pair of glasses and puts them on, and then when Bruce takes them off, he takes his off. And I really like that. That's really nice. How's my mole? I, I, I think you can get behind some of the camper choices there. There's a really nice... It's not clever. It's not big and it's not clever. But you go into Two-Face's hideout for the first time and he's got the two... Uh, terrible, terrible. And what God, what a waste of an actress as well. But the two dolly well, birds... Both of them, I think. Yeah. yeah um, doing, this, doing this thing. But the camera's doing this beautiful seesaw pullback reveal thing. And it starts close and it works further and further out. And it's timed with the dialogue genuinely really, really well. And they do a similar thing with, um, hey, Two-Face, show me how to punch a guy. And it's that thing of having two security guards lined up ready to be punched in the course of that scene. But the camera only reveals the second one in the same position as the first one when he starts balling up the fist and doing Mm. the second punch. There are directorial camp choices that are in that are different from the screenplay idea of what comedy is. And can we talk about the bat ass? Because that's one oh. shot that I de- I definitely wanted to talk about. It's uh, that that for me is the scene that that's the that's the shot in the movie. And if if anyone is listening to this without having watched it, um, it's there's there's like a montage of Batman and Robin getting ready, and you kind of get like a shot of the cowl, and then a shot of the of the uh, well. 
chest plate, and then we just close it's just a close up on Batman's ass. Well, the thing right. is that there's two, and the, the thing about this is that it escalates through the film. So because the film opens with a Batman with that, suiting yes. up sequence mm-hmm. that does it a little bit, and then towards the end of the film, he has to change into the special um, experimental costume because all his other costumes have been destroyed. And that's when you get because it's doing the same thing again. It has to do slightly different shots, and that's when you get the infamous ass shot that lingers. But then it's Batman and Robin where. At the start, there's a Batman and Robin suiting up sequence where you get crotch and arse shots. And then later in the film, there's Alicia Silverstone, Batgirl suiting up and you get crotch and arse and tits shots. Zoom in on the tits yeah, shot. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. I mean, it, by that point, he was obviously doing it deliberately as a joke. And I think the one here is... is I know, it's, it's, it's totally deliberately yeah. a joke. And I think, yeah. I think it, I do, the thing is, though, people, people kind of zero in on it as, oh, you know, Joel Schumacher was kind of you know, uh, obsessed with like the homoeroticism of Batman, so he's got this. And it's like, no, I, th- I think, I think in this, the arse shot is is a gag. It's mm. a, it's not a. Yeah. Oh look, I want to look at Batman's ass. It's here's a funny joke. I think the problem in Batman and Robin is they went, oh, that was a joke that people thought was quite funny in Batman Forever. So let's do it five or six times in this film. Yeah, it's a, it's absolutely a callback in Batman and Robin, and then a callback to the callback. It's yeah. There's some that I. There's, there's some of the design stuff though that I do that I do like in this movie. I think that the the final Joker costume, uh, sorry, Richard Riddle. Riddler. Wow. Jesus, I, yeah, I kind of like all the Riddler, the escalating Riddler costumes. I can't get bored of his the hair only, at some points. The only thing I don't like about it about that is that it takes him so long to figure out what outfit he should be wearing when his house is full of versions of that. Yeah. figure with the outfit on I don't know what could I possibly choose from there's like five of them in the room yeah but yeah I quite but- I, I quite like the the final version of the Riddler because um I, I don't know there, there is something like it's extravagant but he also looks kind of like he also looks scary um and I yeah. and I love the warped version of him right at the end after the, <laughs> after the sci-fi device that I'm still not entirely sure how, what does it do how it works what it did oh, both well, can, can we can we wait until the end and talk about the plot because I, I, there is some there is some fabulous ludicrousness that really struck me in terms of just how little it makes sense i just i didn't Marvelous. i didn't understand it as a tv device i didn't understand <laughs> no, it as no, no. as a villain device i i just i was just like okay i guess that that's what you're telling me but yeah, See, this is the this is the thing about it being at war with itself. It's trying to it does that. It, the Riddler seems gets involved with that story, and so Two Face's thing is sort of it's sort of revenge against Batman, but because that's just shoved away as back. Like I totally get why Tommy Lee Jones said yes to this movie because the mo- the villains for the last two movies got really good meaty interesting stuff to yeah, do yeah. whether whether it all works or not and whether it's the right version of the character or not he must have thought all oh, right a former district attorney with avengers against Batman because of his scarred face who's now gone completely doolally bonkers because of it yeah okay well if it worked for jack nicholson stepping into the jack nicholson part mm. seems good to me and then you and can he assume really leaned into and, stepping into yeah. the jack nicholson part well, he's only given that to do. It's not like he's ever given a thing where he has to talk about like his need for justice and like yeah. he's given the coin and like it's a thing. But it's it's all it's all look just it's shtick. That's why I mean, it's, it's the, not so the, much the, a the character. Where you know shtick. it's not where you know it's just shtick and not a character thing. Is there is a scene where 
it's when they're in Bruce's mansion um, and he's sitting there repeatedly flipping the coin so as to get permission <laughs> from the coin yeah. to shoot him. And it's like, if he's doing that, he doesn't yeah. need permission from the coin. You've managed yeah. to completely... He yeah. might as well not have the coin. That's if breaking the li- that breaking the rule because a yeah a positive outcome from the coin is an answer. Yeah, yeah. It's I quite yeah. like at the start the I like the the kind of the way the expedience of the two face introduction because if he's not meant to be your main villain, then let's not waste a load of time setting him up and let's not no play, let's, wait, let's just mm-hmm. waste a load of time on a really shit heist scene that, that really drags <laughs> down the start of the movie oh no it's boiling, boiling acid that's the that's thing I terrible... like about that scene and it's How an ADR line is. it's a fix because of course someone realised in post wait a minute what's the difference between bubbling water and boiling acids to an audience <laughs> who are just looking at some liquid in a bank vault I don't know. We've added steam. Won't everyone assume it's boiling acid? Why would they? <laughs> it's in a million through years. my shoe. I, yeah. I, there's, there's some great um, questions of practicalities there, such as why does Harvey's plan involve having boiling acid inside the vault that he's trying to steal? <laughs> because it will destroy what he's stealing. Where is it all coming from? Because it fills up the vault, but it's just coming out of the the drawers. The little drawers. <laughs> and then the best part is. After Batman has kind of successfully delivered the safe back through the hole in the wall, it's still full of acid. So someone's got to open that, and a load of boiling acid is going to pour uh, out all yeah, over. Yeah. Other than that, There's it's a, a great scene. I will say the very first thing that you get in this movie, give or take, is these opening is this opening title sequence that is so blatantly deliberately designed to look like Superman from Donna's mm. movie. <laughs> Right, these whooshing credits, yeah. but you know, we'll give them more directions and more angles. And I do feel like, like Schumacher is really, really close to understanding why this works, because the Donna movies, which it definitely is tipping the hat to. Also, Gotham's got a Statue of Liberty too, just like Donna's um, <laughs> Metropolis does. There is a thing about. Oh, it should be a collision of things. It should be the 1970s Superman, but it should be really echoed in this kind of... He should use words like swell. There should be a kind of 40s thing going on. And that's exactly the same thing that eventually the first Raimi Spider-Man did, which was actually you should have that kind of... that age of comics feel to it. It shouldn't be simply taking place in the real world. And so Schumacher's looking at, amongst other things, that Superman movie as an influence. And actually, it's what worked in Burton's Batman because all the gangsters wear fedoras and stuff. It's a proper 40s gangster shtick. Mm. And he's like, yeah, I should collide worlds together. That will, That's how you make this work. It's just that he collides entirely the wrong worlds together. He collides a lot of stuff together, doesn't he? Because uh, oh, weird. I mean, I, I was trying to... I mean, I think actually... Probably that opening sequence after after the names washing because what you go from that into the montage of the suit and it's like oh it, the the suit isn't isn't and it's almost like Edgar Wright has cut it together it's like this this bit of the suit then that bit of the suit and then yeah. oh and, and here's the Batmobile and now here's Batman and look how cool he is even though he's now got Val Kilmer lips instead of Michael Keaton <laughs> chin um, and then there is a joke that undercuts all of it, and it's like, okay, oh. so that's what that's what Joel Schumacher and Akiva Goldsman's Bat- Batman is going to do. It's going to be look at how cool this is, but then undercut it with a little bit of with a gag. But it's it doesn't feel like a movie that undercuts itself. It just feels like a movie that zigzags all over the place, and at one point yeah. is trying to be cool, and one point is trying to be funny, and then it, it's. It's, almost, uh, it's honestly, not even that they clash, really. It's just that they just veer from one to the other. 
honestly, if you hadn't, because that that drive-through gag, that feels like one of those script pages you deliver where you've had the studio in repeatedly saying, no, it needs to be fun for kids. It needs to be fun. Show me that this is going to have gags and stuff. Show me that it's going to fetishize the costume so they want to buy the toy. Show me all of this stuff. So it does an opening sequence that really, really does that. Mm. But actually, if you'd have just let Schumacher make a kind of relatively straight Batman script, but in a campy style, you'd probably have ended up with a better movie. Yeah, and it would have done the same job in terms of being a bit more family-friendly accessible. Absolutely. It would have it just and it would have felt whole. It wouldn't have felt like this kind of piecemeal thing where you lurch from bits that do kind of work, and we'll talk about things like, you know, their version of Robin and stuff, but mm. bits that do well, I, and I know, I knew I knew there was gonna be a hmm um, it's it's strange though. So and this there was at least two kind of main passes at this script. So there was Lee Batchelor and Janet Scott Batchelor who wrote yeah. the original screenplay, and then Akiva Goldsman came in and rewrote it. And I saw that basically uh, the Robin introduction was a Joel Schumacher idea. Um, that he he was like, I've never known a Batman that doesn't have a Robin, so I'm going to put a Robin in. Um, yeah. And then you've got. You've got two faces of villain, and it seems for part of the movie that thematically that's what the movie wants to be doing. It wants to be saying, "There's a Batman has the line, doesn't he?" Is like, is deep down maybe we're all two people, and he. Oh, I mean the film. It's great. The film thinks that it's got this deep underlying theme, this psychological theme about duality, and <laughs> it. I mean, it might think it does, but it it doesn't really get it across with anything other than a visual of a Dreamcatcher doll that's that's split in half, like Two Face, and like how Batman is <laughs> yeah. also two it's, people. It's no Iron um, Man three, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, so you've, it, it's not even a, a Dark Knight. <laughs> so you've got you've I mean, got that, but then you've also got the Riddler stuff on top. And again, none of these, even though the Riddler and Two Face team up, they don't really intersect in any meaningful way because Jim Carrey is just over here making a Jim Carrey movie and giving a yeah. Jim, and giving a Jim Carrey performance and Even several Jim Carrey performances. Yeah. And you try, try and try and reconcile the Jim Carrey stuff with a young Robin who wants revenge on Two-Face because Two-Face has killed his parents. But yeah. they but they are existing in the same movie. <laughs> and they, they well, share and they share screen time but they just I think that's like they're they're so irrelevant to each other that I don't think Robin and and the Riddler ever say anything to each other. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't drive hard at the the way Tommy Lee Jones actually felt about Jim Carrey. I don't know why they didn't include <laughs> that version in the movie because then basically it's the same thing as Men in Black and it works. Mm. Yeah, you know, instead, you, Tom, instead you've got them both doing different impressions, different of the Joker. jokers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, Tommy, I, I, I love Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, but this but is awful in this. This is this is awful. Yeah, and I mean, it's 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 hard to know if you if if you blame him, if you blame the direction, if you blame the script. I think it's just one of those things where all of these factors come together where he's not playing a character that works for him and that suits him. Or works not for doing Scott. it well, um, and he's not yeah. built to do this kind of arch. No. He's certainly not built for camp. Mm. And it's, um, it's bizarre. So sometimes they're asking where... him to do carry on stuff. 
like the camera cuts away for, like for for a half second just to have like um, Tommy Lee Jones go ooh exactly I was just yeah. gonna say, I mean there's, and there's lots of scenes that just end with him laughing and running away like that whole sequence that ultimately ends with um, with Robin rescuing Batman from the, the the collapsed building stuff and Tommy Lee Jones just spends that whole sequence of a good kind of several minutes just cackling and going ah and reacting to things mm. when explosions are happening and but it's just what what what, what in the screenplay <laughs> sorry i know i know i'm going to hit this one over and over again but what in the screenplay is two-face supposed to be doing mm. during that <laughs> sequence it's not like it's like oh yeah no he's using his men as a distraction while he has actually a whole other plan that he's going to execute it's just oh and then two-face and his goons run in and there's a big fight and he's not going to do the fight himself, is he? So he stands there and uh, can you cackle some more? That's all we can get you to do. It's almost as if, Andrew, you've got some kind of vested interest in screenwriting. I can't imagine why you would think that. <laughs> I don't think but, we. I just because I don't think we properly introduced you at the start of the podcast. We we're just like Andrew's no, back. I was going to point out that you hadn't done that, but we kind of got away from it. <laughs> yeah, Andrew edits scripts. Pro- yeah, I've, proper I, ones. I, I help, real ones. I help fix proper te- proper telly and occasionally film scripts for a, just, an actual job. We should have just started this one by going right. How would you fix this one, Andrew? Um, yeah. <laughs> God, can you imagine? Can you imagine doing the tweet notes for this when it came out? Actually, because I feel like you would be doing it for four different movies simultaneously. Yeah. You have an aneurysm. Which which movie do you want me to fix? And when when I talked about all of those different movies that were clashing together, I didn't even mention Nicole Kidman's Chase Meridian. Who is doing... I gotta say, I think this almost works. Like, she's a nothing character and whatever. But the idea of, hey, you know what really worked for the Lois and Clark TV show? Let's do that. I, That's not the I, daftest idea in the world. I kind of think, um, and not counting uh, Michael Goff, I think... In terms of successfully doing what the character is supposed to be, which admittedly, yeah, is quite thin, I think she's probably the most successful performance. Well, there's an argument, yeah. Um, but what just just, just, just move on from Two-Face, because there's one thing I wanted to say, which was that there's a moment, and it's really late on, but you know, we're, we're clearly we're not going through this chronologically, so um, it no. will take us too long. Um, there's a moment with Two-Face, track. and it's right at the very end, just before he dies, and I'll come back to that later. Yeah. Um, where all of a sudden he, when when Batman tells him to use the coin, and he knows Batman's secret identity at this point, and he's and he or he really calmly in a really calm Tommy Lee Jones voice just goes, "Yes, you're right, Bruce," and says something about the the justice of the coin or whatever. And it's like, what movie has that bit come from? Because all of a sudden yeah. that is like they're trying to do a proper version of Two-Face where Harvey Dent has a long and complicated history with both Batman and Bruce Wayne and has this tortured psyche where he can't make, you know, he he, he has this obsession with fairness and justice and duality and can't make decisions about the court. And it's like, it's just this one little moment of, that's the Two-Face you should have been doing. That's that's yeah. the Harvey that Dark Knight went and did uh, and, the, and that's in yeah. year one. Yeah. And it's like, uh, where were you hiding this for the rest of the film? Oh, but then he falls down a massive cliff oh, and dies. So, having been murdered by Batman. Yeah. Should, in fact, should we do it now? Um, yes. <laughs> so, I think, again, we'll have talked about it on Batman and Batman Returns, how in these films, Batman probably does kill people. And, and it's a problem. Like, I don't think he 
kills the Joker and he doesn't kill the villain in Batman Returns, but there's lots of sequences where he basically shoots or blows up henchmen who probably Yeah, he connects died. a bomb to a guy and shoves him down a hole. Like, yeah, that's not... That. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there is a... You know, and I don't want to get into... I'm certainly not going to get into Man of Steel and all that kind of stuff, but I think the reason why I think it's relevant in this film is that in this film, Robin, Dick, wants to kill Two-Face. Batman says to him, you shouldn't kill Two-Face because it won't solve all your problems. You won't feel any better. That's not what he should be saying. He's Batman. The answer from Batman to I want to kill somebody is no, we don't kill people. We do not kill. And then after yeah. all of that, and after all of that telling Robin that he shouldn't kill Two-Face, Batman kills him. <laughs> and, yeah. and the way that it's played in the film is almost Dick kind of feeling like he's been robbed of his moment of vengeance by Batman because Batman did it instead. And it's oh, just... I disagree with that. I will I will cuz they do this they do do that that crash zoom on his face. Mm. But I do think it plays the ambivalence. I do think it is. It does at least go. God, how is he supposed to feel about this? It's going from it, but I think I think a part of it in there is he he doesn't really know what to feel because he's been denied that moment of closure. But equally, he's been shown that Two Face dying won't yeah. change how he feels. But yeah, it's just and it's you can't. This isn't like where the Joker falls off the building in because in Batman you can rationalize it as Batman is trying to stop the Joker by firing yeah. that thing at him, and the Joker yeah. gets caught on the gargoyle thing, and it's it's not what Batman intends to happen. Here, what does Batman think will happen when he throws a load of coins in the air to distract somebody who is standing on a ledge? There is no outcome to that other than. Harvey falls off the ledge. It he only makes sense. <laughs> it only makes sense if you don't know why you threw the coins in the first place. If you're like, well, I don't know how he feels about coins, so probably he won't reach for them erratically yeah. and suddenly. So, yeah. No, I mean, and also, what does... It won't make you feel any better. What is that supposed to be drawn from? I mean, is it like, drawn from the fact that Joker it, died? <laughs> yeah, because if so... You, we, we're saying you didn't kill him deliberately, though. Like it wasn't a vengeance murder at the end. But of course, that's if you assume that this film actually carries on directly from Michael Keaton. <laughs> well, which, I will actually, the there is of Michael Goff and Pat Hingle. It's hard to rationalise in a lot of ways. Going through the deleted stuff, though, amongst other things, there is there was supposed to be a thing in there about how he how this Batman gets accused of doing murders. Like, that was supposed yeah. to be a response to how things had gone in the previous movies. And, of course, all that okay. stuff gets shorn away because don't frighten people with continuity. <laughs> and, and um, some, well, I mean, there's, 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 the there's one, there's one this, reference, isn't there? there? Sorry, so yes, there's one reference to the previous movies. In Skin tight vinyl yeah. and a whip. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, obviously, just well, on a very basic can... level, you'd have to reconcile that with... Hang on a second. Wasn't Billy D. Williams... Well, Harvey exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But that's the thing is they don't call him Harvey Dent. But, I mean, he is Harvey Dent. They call it's him worth... Harvey Two-Face. Harvey Two-Face. I think maybe they do call him Harvey Dent when they're doing the flashback to the bit where he becomes Two-Face. The TV yeah. footage, yeah. yeah, the TV footage. Which I quite um... like. I quite like the TV footage. <laughs> By the way, bit... forward. Yeah. Billy D. Williams is only one one of two examples of a black guy had the part and then they gave it to a white yes, guy. Because the Cause other one's... Robin. Gone. Yeah. Who was uh, Marlon, Wayans. Marlon Wayans? Marlon Wayans, yeah. yeah. In, in returns, yeah. Um, 
That's not a good look retrospectively, is it? <laughs> probably, I probably wasn't just, a great look at the no time. There's no good reason why it couldn't have been Billy D. Williams. If, you know, given that Billy D. Williams signed up for Batman in order to eventually get to play Two Face. Yeah, but he isn't. Just, to be fair, it, he wasn't a marquee title, and this is so ridiculously mm. pivoted towards. Listen, we want five names on the top of the poster. Like every single major yeah. role in this needs to be someone everyone's heard of. It's so fearful of people seeing anything new that they don't recognise from that <laughs> point of view. Just everything has to be casted within an inch of its life. Yeah, so I, I was going to talk about the... Cause you talked about um, uh, stuff that was cut, and there is the kind of the major subplot from this that's actually in the novelisation, yeah. um, w- which shows up earlier in the film and then basically disappears, but is the running thing of Bruce's habit. And this is why Bruce is actually going to see Chase in the first place, which again just kind of gets buried eventually. But he's having bad dreams based on a repressed childhood memory. And it's this mm-hmm. obsession with this red book that's that's his father's journal. And it's really weird because you have the scene left in the film where he talks about the journal. There's like but two it of doesn't them, yeah. actually go anywhere. Because where it's supposed to go, and I don't I don't know Joe or Andrew if you if you know I've, this. But... I've read oh, this yeah. and this yeah. is it, it is <laughs> it's, in, it's on the disc now. Thank they, oh, is it? they've okay. included yeah. they've finally when they did the special editions, they put all this stuff yeah. out. It's yeah. great. So yeah, so so for those who don't, the idea is that basically he he had read in his father's journal that um and it, it, it this is a, a guilt aspect over his parents' so house that stupid. has been in mm. other versions of, of, of the Batman mythos as well that they weren't going to take him to the movies, but uh, Bruce really wanted to. And then the payoff to it is that actually you read the rest of the journal and they they his father decided to take them anyway. Or I, I, I'm struggling on yeah, the it's that it, they went to see a thing his dad wanted to see yeah. instead of the thing that Bruce wanted them to see. Yeah. So therefore, it actually, it was his dad's fault they got murdered. Yeah. As if, as if any of those situations are actually anyone's fault that they got murdered. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's re- it's really shit. Like a kid might believe that, but not grown ass Bruce Wayne who has been Batman for however many no, but, years. Uh, but now. but I think at least I think what what they're trying to introduce with it is an element of doubt in Batman, especially because this film has a sequence where for all of five minutes he decides to give up being Batman. Um, I think there's something you can do. With okay, you you've you've done Batman's first appearance. You've established him. You've done the next film where he, you know, he he is very firmly Batman doing a Batman thing. Then you do the okay. He's going to actually question why he does what he does and whether yeah, it's, it's whether it's about penance or vengeance or you know what why does Batman do this? That is an interesting thing. And and in in casting a love interest who's a psychologist and in having all of this stuff about omens and dreams and that kind of stuff, you're like, oh, okay, this is probably where you're going to go with it. Unfortunately, the film has got no room for that whatsoever, so they just cut and it the all two things, and so the two we things, the, uh, the giant bat that was it was the battery <laughs> baker. It was, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the two things don't reconcile particularly well, anyway, because guilt over the parents doesn't immediately fit together with whether you should fight the injustice of their death. Mm. and similar injustices or not like the movie plays it ultimately in in having removed the sequence that it, it was supposed to be targeted on which by the way is a superman 2 thing right it's the spider-man 2 superman 2 thing of let's have him quit yeah. during the course of the movie so that when he takes up the mantle at the uh, for the third act it will be actually rather cool again but it it 
it tie, tries to line it up as, oh, he just hasn't reconciled the two personas. There's Batman and there's Bruce Wayne, and they are two completely different types of people. Well, nothing in the movies suggests anything particularly, certainly not the, Val, the way Val Kilmer's playing it, that there's two different mindsets at work here. But if the, if the end dialogue is, I've realised, Harvey, that I am both, ba- I am both Batman and Bruce Wayne, because it turns out my parents died by an accident that wasn't my fault. <laughs> Wait, no, those two... Th- no, what's what's the join between those two ideas? I, I do love that that whole thing about the, the way that that final double jeopardy thing is supposed to be about the choice between being Batman and being Bruce Wayne. <laughs> it doesn't really work because no. both Bruce Wayne and Batman have a relationship with Chase and yeah. he doesn't really have a very well-established relationship with Dick at this point. Well, If he, and if he would... had to choose one of them, it's pretty obvious which way he'd go. That choice does not involve choosing between being Batman and being Bruce Wayne. And finally, he actually has plenty of time to save them both, as proved by the fact that oh, he yes. successfully saves them both. It also requires the Riddler to think that Bruce Wayne doesn't know who Robin is in real life and is <laughs> friends with him. Oh, Can I which... also just... The moment in the film that blew my mind was when... Batman figures out that Enigma <laughs> is the jo- is the Riddler. Oh, for God's and, and sake! I, and, and I went, he doesn't. No, everyone at this point, everyone doesn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, no, I mean, he, that's Bruce, you met him. He was bonkers, and he still looks like himself. Yeah. So there's, there's not a lot of. Even without the obvious other stuff, there's, there wasn't a lot to reach for there. I will say, though, I'll give up the points for this. The way all the different riddles join up to form one extra super riddle, yeah. stupid though it might be, is kind of a joy. I, lo- I love the leap in logic of the fact that there are four riddles with four numbers, so he thinks to combine the middle two numbers to make a two-digit oh, yes. number to get the letters yeah. M, R, E, Misty. Also, nothing else about the riddles has anything to do with anything it's literally no. just that they all have a number in yeah <laughs> it's it's very close to the bit in in batman 66 with uh what is it uh, uh oh, the c, phone call with c it. for cat with c for catwoman <laughs> um but yeah it's uh it's safe to say that puzzle writing is not akiva goldsman's strength I'm good. I will no. I will give them one point though. For oh, I didn't actually notice there was there were numbers in each of those clues. Like that wasn't a thing I'd picked up on. I was too busy doing the actual riddle itself. It's but also as well. What is the point of the riddles? All that the riddles do is tell Bruce Wayne that Edward Nigma is the Riddler. Oh yeah, and it's and this is where and let's let's get into right. In the third act, especially, but I mean, in the film as a general, but in terms of how the how the plan comes to a conclusion, so let let's just lay out what's happening here, okay? Right, Edward Nigma has got a machine that will enable him to steal brainwaves from a load of people, thus enabling him to have power over them. And there's a there's a, there is also a little you don't really have to. It's not a big problem, but I did find it amusing that the ridiculousness of he goes on about how it's going to give him credit card numbers and bank details and stuff and it's like what good is just getting a load of credit card numbers he's got to sit there and use all of those credit card numbers on the internet to buy things <laughs> it's like, also can either of you two tell me either any of your credit card numbers 
Oh, actually, I can. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> have because, you bought enough because, stuff online that you that you have? Honestly, it, it was that it was it was because there was a window before browsers started remembering <laughs> your 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 yeah. information. But also at that point, my bank login had to be the number oh, on the okay. card, right. and so. I, as someone but, but who you, obsessively you checks whether it's, I'm skint, yeah. it's not a bit of information that everyone knows and that would instantly give you access I, to see, all of I, their money. No, but in um, the nineties, <laughs> in, in a pre-internet, there was definitely a thing of actually whenever you do phone ordering of something. Yeah. But the point is, I just I like picturing the Riddler having to order all of this stuff over the phone using stolen over the phone. Numbers. That's yeah, um, absolutely. Anyway, I mean that, that's a little point. But the big so let, let's just let's forget all the practicalities and the nonsense of the machine and let's just say the riddler has a machine that will enable him to become massively powerful okay that's fine mm-hmm. that's his plan that works the riddler teams up with two-face because the biggest threat to what the riddler is going to do is batman and two-face wants to kill batman but simultaneously the riddler is obsessed with bruce wayne and sort of has a stalkerish relationship with him and while he kind of wants to kill batman he wants to impress bruce wayne so the riddler finds out that bruce wayne is back. No, he wants doesn't he want to punish Bruce Wayne? Yeah. Sorry. Okay. But... but okay, so before the Riddler finds out that Bruce Wayne is Batman, he has started to send him a series of riddles <laughs> through the post which ultimately do nothing other than say Mr. E is the Riddler. What's Bruce yeah. Wayne going to do with that information because this is before the Riddler knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman. But secondly, Riddler finds out that Bruce Wayne is Batman. So he and Two-Face, who, again, have this goal of let's kill Batman so that our plan can be successful, go to Bruce Wayne's house, shoot Bruce Wayne, and are in a position to shoot him in the head. And the Riddler says, no, don't do that. They leave him the final clue. So all that means is that Bruce Wayne slash Batman is alive and can go and stop the Riddler from achieving his plan, which he would be able to achieve if he killed Batman. Once Batman has defeated the Riddler, the Riddler has the nerve to utter the line, why can't I kill you? Oh Maybe yeah, that's because ridiculous. you were standing over him with a gun pointed to his head and said, "No, I just don't I, I, kill him." I don't understand what the Riddler's purpose is in bringing Batman to the island because, like, all of his clues and stuff have been built up towards that, but it doesn't serve any purpose. Ah, uh, now hang on, trying hang on. To do by no, no, bringing the, Batman the, there. The clue isn't to isn't to bring Batman to the island. It's to say I'm the one who's been torturing you all this time. Yeah, but it would have that. It would have that inevitable. No, absolutely, but we're not saying like. He He's playing with a full deck, right? We, there is there is at least the counter argument that what he wants is for Bruce Wayne to be humiliated and mocked and suffer and be confused for a long time, and then at the end of all of that, go, "Oh my God, that genius I sacked was behind all of this." <laughs> okay. Oh, but, but, but which makes sense <laughs> up until I agree. Up until the point that Nigma realizes, wait a second, he's Batman as well. Yeah. But and also, now he's, you have that yeah. scene where with the machine at the party, and at the, again at this point, Nigma doesn't know that Bruce is Batman. No. It's, this is no. how he finds out that Bruce is Batman. Why is the whole thing of trick Bruce Wayne to use the machine so that we can read his mind such a big deal for the Riddler if the yeah. result is not to find out that he's actually Batman? It's like it's yeah. like it's gone in reverse. It's like the, the 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 film has gone. We need Nigma to find out that Bruce is Batman, but so we're going to have him do something that relies on him already knowing that Bruce is Batman in order to know that that would be a way to find out that Bruce is Batman. It's very weird, isn't it? <laughs> it's such a peculiar. 
oh, the whole telly box thing fascinates me because they, they he he gets involved with Two Face partly to to get startup capital yeah. <laughs> to start his telly business. Now, no kidding, this is a thing that makes your regular television a three D super immersive television. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you only need to make a few prototypes and then go to a, and start. It doesn't seem like it would need a lot of persuasion of the, you know, but you don't need the, to but fast. It, well, isn't there just the thing? Of, no, because Bruce turns him down because Bruce goes, well, you're manipulating brainwaves. And I well, think the, idea, and the Bruce, idea was that that's the reaction that he'd get off other people as well. Well, and, and you know, sure enough, the Wayne Network will not be using the, the system. <laughs> but is he the only person that could possibly have backed... The most <laughs> impressive bit of tech. I'm I mean, pretty we've sure people seen from would... Batman Returns that there are some pretty evil billionaires around in Gotham City. That's true. <laughs> if I, if true. only he hadn't been electrocuted by Catwoman, I think Max Shrek would have been all over Absolutely, that. Absolutely, the Shrek box. <laughs> yeah. So, guys, we've talked a lot about like this movie not working in all these kinds of ways and all of the things that aren't very good about it. Why don't I hate it? Because I don't, <laughs> I don't hate it, and I don't. Look, and I don't think it is terrible. There's, I, I, I there's lots of terrible, terrible things. I don't hate it. <laughs> I think there's lots of terrible things in it, but I think I come out of it and go, do you know what? It's not a good movie, but it's it's two stars rather than like a one star absolute disaster. There is a charm to it. There is definitely a charm to it. And Joel Schumacher, by the way, Joel Schumacher actually has a really good film career. Like a lot of his movies are really, really good movies. So it's. This is that this is a misfire. It doesn't stop that there's a lot of people involved here. Jim Carrey is kind of at the height of his, you know, first nineties push of thing. And there is still a lot of delight in watching him do a lot of that shtick. As as a as a big fan of Jim Carrey, there are definitely bits of this that I find really wearying. And I, as I said, I I'm not as keen on him as the Riddler as I am on him as as Nigma. I think I think I think the character he creates of of Nigma, the 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 deranged weirdo, works really well. Whereas I find Nigma really exhausting and the Riddler quite delightful. <laughs> he, oh, well, there you go. He's exhausting, Dang. but it's like it, it's Ace Ventura exhausting. Well, not well. No, I I don't think Nigma is Ace Ventura exhausting. I th- I mean I think abs- I I think you can find the Riddler that way because the Riddler is is you know just all of those. Big Jim Carrey, loud, shouty. Let's put in a pop culture reference. This is mm. the thing I'm doing now. It's like baseball, so let's throw that on the top. And then somebody says, "Hey, but we could put the sounds on the soundtrack and make sure everyone gets this joke really hard." <laughs> but I'm, yeah, I'm on the other side with to Seb on this. I I find Nigma so caricatured in fact and it ends up being the same thing that i didn't like about poison ivy's pre-poison ivy's oh, well, phase in the because, next movie because uma thurman when she's i think she's okay as poison ivy but as as pamela isley it's one of the worst performances in anything right whereas i think those two are quite similar <laughs> her her doing that and and him doing enigma yeah. i find a bit close but yeah. But also, I'm going to... Right, you know what? I'm going to say the good thing. I'm going to say I like Robin in this movie. Hey, do you know what? Me too. Hey! I definitely did when it came out. Because this is... I mean, I'll come back to why not hate... I can't hate this film because in a not dissimilar way to Superman 3, albeit nearly a decade later, Mm -hmm. Superman 3, as we talked about on that episode, was the Superman film that I watched as a little kid and that got me into Superman. By the time Batman Forever came out, I'd seen Batman, I'd seen Batman Returns, I was into Batman and into Batman comics. But as I say, I I was 12 in the summer of 1995, so I was pretty much the perfect age for this film because I was old enough 
to understand it, but young enough not to be put off by all of the stuff that we've just spent an hour being critical yeah. of. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not saying you don't have any critical faculties when you're 12, but you can get swept up in something. Um, you totally. know, I had action figures from this film. I, I don't like U2, but I bought the U2 single because I really liked it and I liked the video Crazy. and everything. You know, I this film is just is of exactly the right time and place and everything that you know I I enjoyed mm-hmm. it. So it will always have that, even if now I can sit here and pick apart all the stuff that is just just stupid about it. And I think even when it's being stupid, it's it's fun in places. It's not as right. much fun as I remembered it being. I, I I I'd always had this 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 image in my head that that Batman Forever and Batman and Robin are trying to do similar things, but Batman and Batman Forever succeeds better at it and and has more kind of earnestly fun stuff in it. I'm actually now not so sure about that and I am intrigued to do Batman and Robin because I'm kind of think that the older I get, the more I might actually enjoy Batman and Robin having hated it for so long. But um yeah, I just, I, this just, it's just, it's not very good. It's really not very good. But, but sure. But, 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 I'm, but the weird point of the Robin arc, the Robin arc, yes. I think might be quite good. And it, it has obviously, I think it has a problem at the start and the end, in that at the very end, the way we've already described, they yeah, resolve yeah. the two-faced stuff is messy and unpleasant. And at the start... He's a decade too old to well, be I was just gonna Robin. Say, this, <laughs> that's this, that's right. the main issue. How old is the character in this film? Because this film doesn't know how old Dick Grayson no. is. Because and, it, and he looks twenty five, and that's well, how old. For starters, he looks twenty five because Grayson O'Donnell is twenty five and yeah. looks like you know. It, it's not like how if it had been Leonardo DiCaprio who was like twenty one at the time and looked younger. Um, this is Chris O'Donnell who is twenty five and looks like he's approaching thirty. Um, He's young enough that he has to be taken in by Bruce when he becomes an orphan. So he can't be older than, like, what, 15, 16? But Bruce makes reference to the fact that he wants him to be a college student, and he rides a motorbike, and he looks like Chris O'Donnell. I just think it's one of those things that the movie movie is, is, like, all over the place is throwing things at you that you cannot reconcile to make sense. I think that just beyond that first scene where Batman takes in... Robin, and he is—he is supposed to be whatever age you think he is. It—it it almost doesn't matter. I, 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 I think, there's a, there's, I there's a think bit you're right ha- at the very end, which I mean, I, and I'm going to nick a comment that I read somebody else made, which is the, there's that weird bit at the end when there's the bit about him rescuing them and the Riddler's read their minds, and it says about how uh, what uh, Dick dreams of one day being bare naked with a girl, and it's like, mm. well. He's like he's a college-aged guy with an earring, a leather jacket, and a motorbike who looks like Chris O'Donnell. Do you really think he hasn't had any action in his life up to this point? <laughs> and that just feel, th- that feel that line feels like a hangover from writing for a younger Robin. I think probably be bearing in mind how the plot arc goes and stuff that he was intended to be like 16. a fifteen-year-old, yeah. fifteen, sixteen-year-old, and then they cast Chris O'Donnell. And I think. When he settles in, and the stuff with him in the house with Alfred is great, and when he's settled into the role and doing that, it's fine. And you're right; I think I think you overlook the the inconsistencies when he's doing that stuff. Uh, I think the bit where he goes. I don't know what I don't think these things are as inconsistent as that. I I think partly this is holding a film from the mid '90s to a an aesthetic standard that we now have, because he's the same age as. Xander in Buffy, 
You know what I mean? Of course, yeah, he's got five o'clock shadow, but this was the mid-90s. Everybody who was playing a late teenager on TV was actually 27. There's a real... I'm just suddenly imagining how good uh, Tom Holland would wow, be as Robbie. <laughs> well, there you go. And that's the thing. Don't get me wrong. Like, that, that's, that's part of why this new Spider-Man is exciting, is because you can cast a guy who looks like he might actually still be in the damn school. But there was a time when... And particularly for kids, you don't cast a 15-year-old to play 15, a 17-year-old to play 17, not just because they're really hard to film with because you then have to have all the the child labour rules and filming schedules and whatever, but also because 17-year-olds look at a 17-year-old on the screen and they, they see... They need the range of emotion that they they are feeling rather than the range of emotion most 17-year-old actors are capable of giving. So you all you tend to cast higher in the same way as you tend to aspire slightly higher. So if you want, you know, 15-year-olds to think Robin is cool, he's kind of got to look 25. There is a there is a logic to that. And like like saying Dick Grayson college student, well, yeah, once you've graduated high school maybe. Cuz they're driving cars from 16 in America. I don't know. I don't I don't think it's as much of a problem. I certainly put it this way. I don't remember it being a problem then when I was 19 watching or whatever I was watching the movie and going, wow, this is preposterous. And I think because actually the arc tracks and it works and... I the beats know, I of think, it are really nice. Yeah. The beats of it are really solid. And I think Chris O'Donnell actually, uh, in, in this movie, finds a really nice middle ground of being you, you kind of you you're rooting for him to become robin you're rooting for yeah. bruce to allow him to become robin and you're not finding him annoying you're not finding him kind of like clipping he's, batman's heels or anything like that you're you 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 kind of root for this kid he's he's oddly delightful with alfred like he finds yeah. a very quick pally relationship there the the way bruce gets him convinces him to stay in the first place is actually quite that, neat which is yeah. i see that i see the thing that you're into i've got 27 of those <laughs> Um, I actually think him watching his parents die genuinely works. The bomb's preposterous, and that you know it is that Two Faces arrived from a different movie I think to make I, this I, sequence I can happen. The preposterous bomb, if they're doing a deliberate reference, homage. Which I, think, <laughs> I think they are in the way that I think Dark Knight Rises was doing. Yeah, it, so yeah. No, there I is an aesthetic totally thing, and I actually think there. the whole trapeze sequence is really well done. I like, yeah. I, I like the trapeze stuff that they're doing before Two Face shows up, even. The timing of it is is really good of the of the routine that they're doing, and then the the rescue that they're doing of it is kind of cut in in the same way. Yeah. Um, There's also and, you know it, 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 this, and I, I do think it's one of the most interesting things that this film does um, in terms of relationship with the comics is it takes something that is not necessarily that well known, but but quite well established of a history between. Robin and Two-Face and not just Dick Grayson but actually every version of Robin has some kind of quite strong antagonistic connection to Mm -hmm. Two-Face and the whole thing about Two-Face being responsible for Dick's parents dying is not from the comics but it makes absolute sense to draw those threads together and say well if we're going to do a film where we've got Two-Face as the villain we've got Robin as the hero we've got this well-established relationship in the comics where pretty much like Harvey Dent is probably Dick Grayson's one of his main arch enemies um tie those together by having in the way they did with the Joker in the first film although I 
still yeah. don't think that was a great idea, but here it's I think it is a good idea. It's like, well, rather than it being a, a random criminal who's resp- a mob boss who's responsible for it, why shouldn't it be Two Face? It's it's the it? Jason Todd st- backstory, really, isn't yeah. it? Am I right? Yeah, um, I half remember. Yeah, I think they because yeah, they, they they'd have the stuff they kind of they establish stuff with with Dick and Two Face, and then yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think it is uh, the death of. Uh, Jason Todd's adoptive parents, I think Two Face yeah. might be responsible for, not his actual mum, because we know about who killed. Yeah, him. that turns into a whole thing. Um, and, but then, but, it's... but then, um, uh, Tim Drake's first appearance as Robin is essentially him helping Batman to defeat Two Face, like he does. In this right, because right. there are definitely elements of not just from the costume. Well, actually, no, almost entirely from the costume. There, there is a bit of Tim Drake feeding into this. Yes, yeah. And then you get you get. Um... You get Dick in the house, and he knows something is up. He notices that this this place is too. They're being we're way too secretive at that one well, that one particular room. Now, all right, it's it that's it's arch and it's and I, no, it's camp is what it is, and there's nothing wrong with camp. But actually, that he's been portrayed as like quite this slick mover thing who's going to find a way to get into that room out of his own skill. That's a nice little beat. He should find the Batcave through his own effort and skill. Like that's a that's a solid move. I I'm I'm very on board with all of the moves that get him all of the way into the Robin costume, except for the slightly arch thing of apparently you can just sort of go away and get a costume yeah. to happen. <laughs> um, there's a there is a there's a Straczynski Spider-Man comic about the guy in New York who makes superhero costumes, but he only does three days a week for heroes because he has three days a week who he does the villains' costumes. <laughs> What's he doing on a Sunday? Uh, I think he's allowed Sundays off. He's like Craig David. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about Nicole Kidman and Chase Meridian because it it kind of does ultimately end up being its own little part of the story. Um, oh, they they cut. It's such an interesting. Well, it's not an interesting structure. It's like it's like a very primitive structure where you just go. Have we done the two face thing just to keep him ticking over? Right now we can do the Chase Meridian rom com story. Yeah, yeah. Now, so now we can do the the Robin origin. Da, da, da. It's all these individual they, pieces that don't really belong together. They really skip a lot of beats in the particularly on the on the Chase and Bruce side of things, where like. She's obsessed with Batman, and and like she has that first meeting with Bruce, where they've got that sort of you know uh, snarking at each other but flirty undercurrent thing, which then... which sets her up as kind of like um a, a an intelligent scientist, but who can hold her own in a bit yeah. of banter with with this very impressive guy, and then the very next scene is like. Oh my god! I want to fuck Batman so bad. <laughs> well, this is, she does. Well, because she because, goes straight to it. I do quite like. But, like that. He, but he like he asks her to this circus thing when they've just met. But he asks her in a way that's as if they've known each other for quite a while. But and then she goes with him to the circus, and then one of the first things she says to him at the circus is, "Oh, I've met somebody else while I'm here." And so it's like oh, yeah. you, you've missed, you seem to have missed so many plot beats there, and then she just spends the rest of the film just boomeranging between which of the two. It is it is very it hard to that scene with that that smirk, which is a really that. nice moment. It does. It is look. It is difficult to do the Lois and Clark story, but just very quickly during the course of a, a, you know, a subplots in another bigger movie. But like I say, if you're going to draw from something, it seems like a decent enough. And if you, you know what, if you're trying to do a story about reconciling the two that she fancies them both, it is at least sort of on point. Mm. 
I yeah. do. Uh, I, I like the bit where he says that he's he's going to tell her something that he's never told anyone before, and it's like, did you see the previous two movies? Because <laughs> they both found out. I also I, like I'll... how the script just like it tries to give them sexy banter, except oh. it's 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 just it's just really clunky on the nose stuff where she's like. Uh, She's like, oh, I want to, I want to see what's what's underneath the mask or something. And he, and he literally says something like, "Oh, you want to get under my suit?" Like that's not <laughs> yeah, a, that's the... not a double entendre. That's just entendre. It's, no, <laughs> it's fair to say that the script fights as much as possible the fact that I, th- I think Nicole Kidman in scenes in this film has more sex appeal than almost anybody else in a film but the script is really determined to try and take as much of that away from her as possible <laughs> well it's that thing of writing clever characters if you don't if you don't give them a minimum level of wit if you do, you know if it's if it's like well she she does puns she can do that <laughs> um and other than that it's just going to be basic flat statements of intent and and um, and she thinks bats are rodents. Oh yeah, no. And, that's, oh yeah, oh right. That, that bit with the raw shark, right? Where she's like, oh, oh yeah, it's a raw shark. You see what you want to see? It's like, no, it's a bat. <laughs> it's a yeah. block of a bat. <laughs> I I got to say though, the bat the Batman franchise was pretty good at casting. Not that it outside of Batman Returns gave them an awful lot to do, but really good at casting its female leads. Like in just terms of like. Who is really hot shit in Hollywood right now? Yeah. Let's well, let's and, bring that until, person in. Until you get to Batman's girlfriend in Batman and Robin. <laughs> yeah. At least. Yeah, no, that's that's fair point. The other I will then, yeah, there is one other delightful thing here that was a move away from the previous movies, which is I really like the score. I think this has got a really good theme to it. This new Batman thing. We, we've talked about this before, though, because I remember a, a while ago I was watching uh, the films through, and I think I talked on, on Twitter about the soundtrack and about how you forget this second '90s Batman theme until you mm. hear it again, and then you hear it again and you realise how much you heard it in the '90s, yeah. and it gets stuck in your head. And it's like it's not as iconic as the Danny Elfman one, and I still find it kind of weird that they replaced the Danny Elfman one. But again, that's, this brings us to. I don't really think this film is in the same series yeah. as the others. Reboot call, um, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's it's a strong theme that that works really well. I like the soundtrack generally because I, I like the song soundtrack as well. It's the it's it's, oh, it's sure. towards the dying days of nineties films having the big hit single that plays over the closing credits. Like I'm I'm struggling to think of many films that did it after Spider Man. Um, I I skipped straight to the Kiss from a Rose music video on the DVD. <laughs> I thought this is the thing. It's got two. It's got Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, and Kiss from a Rose. Those are two. Yeah, it's it's such a movie, songs. such a blatant <laughs> look. We're we're gonna do the soundtrack. We're gonna put as many things on it as you've heard of. Technically, this is nothing. Neither of these are in the film. Well, I was say, They're only of those on the, in the film. I tell you but... who is in the film. The flaming lips are in the film. Oh, uh, the the bit when it's um, when Nigma first shows him at his little hideout. That's a flaming in his lips hideout. Song. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Ah, and that that does that really fits yeah. that bit as well. That's yeah, a, that's yeah, yeah. A, that's an early example of the Guardians trick of diegetic music oh. that fits with characters. Yeah, absolutely. if you assume, actually, I don't know if it is meant to be diegetic. I, I'm assuming that he's listening to that. Uh, it's in, yeah, it's it's a weird. Having having mostly not done songs in the score that way, mm. it's usually playing in somebody on somebody's stereo or in the background or yeah. you know whatever. Yeah, 
But yeah, no, that 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 theme. I mean, do do, do you like that it more than cool the Elfman one, Andrew? I mean, I think it does something different. I think it has a. I think it feels like wings spreading. Like that one is the ominous Batman is coming towards you. Batman is yeah, coming towards you. <laughs> you know what? The the Elfman one to me, and this is probably because I'm not so interested in Batman as James Bond. The Elfman film feels to me like the Batmobile is hammering down the road towards yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> and it is it is used for a lot of. Uh, <laughs> Batmobile. Although no, no, and it does. The, and those two movies fetishize the Batmobile above fetishize. And but, actually, give Schumacher his due. He's way more interested in fetishizing Batman in the cape and cowl <laughs> than he is in fetishizing the gadgets and the the vehicle. I actually, if except for the fact that the big tail fin flaps when it's driving, which I don't think. It's oh, supposed when to it do. bounces. Aside from yeah. that, I prefer this Batmobile design to the original Burton one. Wow. Uh, I just want to jump you. jump back to the music. Bold one for me. It's <laughs> it all pales compared to Batman Mask of the Phantasm. That's the oh. that's the Batman score <laughs> for me. And that actually, to be honest, feels like the step the the Batman the animated series series music. Obviously, Danny Elfman composed the title music for that, but it feels like the stepping stone between the Elfman score and between um, whose score is it here? Elliot Elliot Golden Golden Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, that feels like the, the connective tissue for me. Um, want to uh, mention them? We mentioned them brief- briefly. Sugar and spice, the the two the two face. Um, Bloody hell! What, I mean, what, I mean, what, at least what are Drew Barrymore they? gets a couple more lines. You know, it's it's almost like she, they knew she at least we are wasting she, her. <laughs> she at least gets to flirt with Bruce Wayne, which does feel like. Look, I turned up on the set and I'm doing the same thing in knickers again. Um, <laughs> are you not going to at least let me? Right, I, I'm walking. If you don't give me one line with the main character of the film, I think the bizarrest thing with 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 those two is the bit when Riddler comes to Two Faces Hideout because he he brings his device thing and then he's got ones already there and then he kind of whistles to summon them and they immediately go and do. Oh yeah, and it's like. What's happened here? Has he pre-established a relationship with Two-Face that's, that's Henchwomen? That's the camp genre rules. Like, if that would totally work in your in Batman sixty six, yeah. and that's that's again the film fighting with itself. Because a minute ago it was all no, no, no henchmen's and blah blah, blah. and then all of a sudden it's like oh no, they they just bend to whatever the plot's ha- having done. By the way, Harvey has this like infinite stream of henchmen. I yes. don't know what this operation <laughs> who, is and how he's financing who it. Who all have to have died at the end because they would all know that Bruce Wayne is Batman otherwise. They also, you know, there's that there's that chase sequence where where Batman ends up doing, a, which surely is a joke about Batman sixty six, where he drives the Batmobile up the side of a building. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that action sequence starts li- literally out of nowhere? That we just cut to it one yeah. it's halfway through the movie, you just cut to it. anyway. So Batman's driving along, yeah. fighting Two Face's goons. Wait, is he? Why? What's Two Face <laughs> trying to do? What? What is this for? Does that Are come? We... At, does that come after Robin has been? I'm trying. I I can't even place it in the movie. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. It doesn't feel like it comes from or leads to anything. I think it has. I can't remember. It does have some purpose, but I can't. It's just sort of there. It's bizarre. And this is this is why it feels like the movie is just a, a selection of chopped up bits. Yeah. But most of them at least have a 
oh yeah, well, four scenes from now, you will get the next beat of that particular story. And I and feel like from- a lot of it comes from as well that it, this is a movie that has been very carefully formulated from, right, we've got two previous Batman movies, we've got Batman comics that we can lift characters from, and we've got the 1966 series where a lot of these characters still have some wider cultural uh, relevancy. Mm-hmm. And we're going to just take these things and because we're ultimately what we're trying to do is create a movie that people are going to turn up for in their droves and buy the merchandise for. It kind of doesn't matter if it doesn't all fit together because the reason all these things are in there is because the studio has asked for them. And Joel Schumacher and Akiva Goldsman are people that are just going, well, if at the end of the day we get to make it and we get to go big and bonkers with it, then fine. That that feels like ultimately why none of it coalesces. I mean, even is, even sugar and spice, like oh. they're silly, they're nonsense. But I mean, I watch them and I think, yeah, that probably is like the family friendly version of the like the the the, the sexy girls, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's that is that is probably a fourteen fifteen year old's idea of this is the sexiest thing in the world. Those two they are right there. generally speaking. It's that thing of you know you can draw the silhouette or whatever. It is very you, sugar and spice don't appear in a scene and you go wait who were they what were they were connected to like there's no the one thing it does have on its side is clarity. Mm. But when you make one of these kind of super studio pro- and and Schumacher has been very honest, particularly about Batman and Robin, but he has been very honest that he took this on knowing that. Um, I think it's Peter McGregor Scott. The, the the push was look, we got to sell toys. The Burton thing just wasn't put wasn't good enough on Happy Meals. We've got to get this being a particular kind of thing, and you have to include all of these elements. That's why they're changing outfits. That's why they get a different set of suits at the end of the movie. Mm. All of that kind of stuff. You can still under that do something good with it. It just depends what kind of artistic and creative sensibilities you bring. And Schumacher. I swear, he's at least driving towards, I would like Robin to actually be awesome and for him to make sense, and I'm going to make sure that does. So even just little bits of him washing his clothes, it's actually a cool little idea that he's kind of, he's doing that whipping thing, and that's really cool. And he and he's decided he's going to do camp, so they said, well, look, as long as it doesn't get in the way of the rest of the movie, you go and camp it up. So when he does camp decently when there is a cut to the badass and it does kind of work as a joke because you did a montage earlier and this is a setup payoff that's structurally sound the flip side of that is if you have a screenwriter whose thing about making things function is okay i will make them function yeah here they are functioning because you know how batman said he couldn't reconcile to himself as being two different people at the end he says he can (laughs) <laughs> and you know how Chase Meridian says Harvey's weakness is his coin, and then at the end, <laughs> the weakness is his coin. See, it's all there, and it like this is deeply unambitious structurally and tonally. And I know that the point of that bit is that she spuriously called him on the bat signal just to have a conversation mm-hmm. with him. But the fact that her spurious reason is, I figured out that Two Face's weakness is his coin. You don't say. <laughs> Batman's like. No, you know what? I've been at this for years, and I God, if only someone had mentioned this sooner. <laughs> I just thought so the he number- just had a random little bit of metal that just kept flying near his head whenever he was around. <laughs> didn't so know what that was. L- I was literally in the courtroom when he got the acid in his face, you know. So, Andrew, you but, were... By um... the way, sorry, he was sat... Batman was sat in the courtroom with his cowl on in the daytime watching a courtroom See, drama unfold. I, I like that because that is a that is a Batman 66-y thing to do. Yes. I mean, right, yeah. right from the start, 
this film establishes that Batman is there to do the cops' job for them, and they will just mm-hmm. stand back and let him do it. Um, yeah. You know, you you have the thing throughout the films of they'll summon him with the bat signal, but this is literally there is a crime going on. Commissioner Gordon will signal Batman and then stand there yeah. and cheer as Batman goes off to solve the crime that the police yes. should be. Doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's even better in Batman and Robin when he literally turns up on a video screen in the Batmobile wearing a military outfit for some reason to give Batman and Robin a mission. With the briefing, yeah. Pat Hingle's also very... Pat Hingle's bad in this movie. Pat Pat Hingle seems to be entirely dependent on directors and in this, and particularly in Batman and Robin, he's, he's dreadful. But when he was supposed to be... That kind of, I mean, I'd, I'd, it's not a particularly interesting take on the character of Commissioner Gordon, mm. but this idea that he is fat and old yeah. and tired does at least fit that, with a city the, that the, badly the needs a Batman. Scene in the first film, he he suits yeah. that that version of Gordon well. It's just you don't see totally. that version of Gordon again after that. No, no, absolutely. Talking of bad, we've not really talked about him that much. Um, yeah, I was wondering when we were going to get on to, it, to yeah. actually uh... Val Kilmer. So I think we we talk, we talked an awful lot about Michael Keaton when doing the first two Batman movies because Keaton does some really interesting stuff. He's obviously not a natural choice for Batman, and the fans felt that at the time. I, I guess on paper Val Kilmer makes a little bit more sense. So apparently he was cast because Schumacher had seen him in Tombstone and went, "Yeah, that's that's a Batman type right there." Mm-hmm. Um, an early nineties Val Kilmer, who was, you know, a pretty huge star. Yeah. Well, and Batman. you know, of the before we got into the kind of superhero thing of like, you know, you're going to have to Chris Pratt things up if you want to look like you belong as a superhero. He was on the more physically fit, you know, cover cover star, good looking guy kind of end of the spectrum. Mm. He was well fancied and decently built and i I think think as well as too he's too clean and pretty for for batman i you know i think it 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 changes depending on the scene and depending on how they've dressed him sometimes i think oh he looks perfect and then other times i'm like oh why lipstick yeah yeah exactly (laughs) i was also gonna say i think this was before val kilmer or maybe around the time that Val Kilmer started to get the reputation for being difficult, and I think it was. Well, the thing is, the thing is, he was difficult on this movie. Mm. It was just that the reputation hadn't fully emerged yet. I think it, it coalesces with the island of Doctor Moreau, where he is. Uh, oh man! It's, it's him and Brando and um, amazing. I think amazing. David Fulis is just there trying to <laughs> yeah. figure out what the hell's going on around him. I um I think with Val Kilmer in this film, I th- I think it, I think being completely fair to him, what you can say is that of all the people who've played Batman in movies, he is one of them. <laughs> I'm you know what I'm going to stand up slightly for his Bruce Wayne. I don't I like it, at, it's again, weird at times. It's it's weird that he does he he's in a movie where there literally is a plot written about the duality of the two personalities and he drives really hard at giving them no distinct persona <laughs> whatsoever. Like it's it's conspicuous that he doesn't do what Michael even Michael Keaton was doing with it. Yeah. But I do I do But more I... than that I will give him a huge thumbs up for the moment when he stands up and says, "Harvey, I'm Batman." <laughs> because 
I really felt that. I re- I was like, because how many how proper... many people would have actually heard, around him would have actually heard him, including Chase, by the way. Uh, to be fair, they were all they were that. all screaming in pa- like I know the mix does a lot of the work there, but it's it's reasonable <laughs> to be focused on the lunatic with the bomb in the center of the ring with the spotlights on him at that moment. I also think he'd be entirely justified in when when Robin's punching him and saying, "If you'd have only told Two Face," he was like, "I fucking tried, mate. Did you not see?" Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I really, I just, f- for little moments, and it's not like his Bruce Wayne is like some kind of consistent character, but there are, it's, sorry, Joe, you said it and then I talked all over you, but he has his little moments where his Bruce Wayne is something. And in that moment, his Bruce Wayne is heroic. His Bruce Wayne, for like one line, is Batman. But there are similarly and, other moments where it feels like someone has held up his lines on a cue card at the back yeah. of the set. And he oh, is, sure. and he is like robotic. It, it, it's bizarre how unnatural some of his line readings are. There's there's this thing in all of in all of the '90s Batman films and to, and in Batman Begins as well, where the costume restrains performance so badly, and and mm. constantly all of them are fighting the fact that they are wearing this restrictive costume that doesn't let them emote facially, other than below the nose, and you know they've got to try and get out of it what they can. But Val Kilmer is the only one who carries that performance into when he's not wearing the costume as well. He's it's, just it's a very restrictive polo neck. Yeah, and I, but I just I look at it and I actually think God, I mean I, I think it's partly that you know we have kind of gained this this growing increased appreciation for for the work of Michael Keaton in the years since. But you look at this and you look at particularly the relationship with Chase and the fact that this was a film about being both Bruce Wayne and being Batman. You think how much fun Michael Keaton could have had with it. Although if it had been Michael Keaton, Chase would have been Rene Russo. Um, but Which would have been something, yeah. actually. <laughs> when you lay that out, that is something. Because, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I find Nicole Kidman fairly flat in things. Um, and she's... She's she's doing actually the Australianness kind of helps here, like it, that drives her towards something like the camp thing that Joel Schumacher is doing. So at least she she drives hard at a lot of the bad lines, like they're deliberately bad. Hmm. But when you but say you find she's Nicole got Kidman no... flatten things in general or just occasionally, I mean I'm I I I can't I can't think of. I mean, God, she's been making movies now for, what, 30 years or something. I don't think I could pull three performances that I go, wow, she's just amazing in that. Um, She's never been um, an an actress I've warmed to or who I've found had the range that I like from a star who's carrying the kind of thing she's carrying. I I would agree with you, but I do like her in this because I think she's having fun in this. And I think you don't always get that impression from her. Um, yeah, and no, I, I would. Think, I, would, I think, I would, I think, I would I think Paddington. That. She's pretty good because she looks like she's having fun in that as well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and right, maybe I don't that... think she's ever had a major sort of wow. She's amazing thing. But, but that. I, thing I mean, I will right. disagree on behalf of I would imagine a good majority of our listeners. But um, <laughs> I don't. Well, we'll I don't, find out. I don't. The ants will come in. I don't think we need to go too deep into it. But I think there are a lot of good Nicole Kidman performances. But hey ho. Um, you said good, but, we were but certainly about great. Yeah, no. Well, I think there's, a, I think there's at least a handful of great ones as well. But we don't but cer- need to get into certainly. It. Kilmer can't do chemistry with her, no. and I'm happy not to put the the blame for that on her particularly, because God knows he's he's who he is. But and also Joel Schumacher knows that as well, because at the end of the movie, it is not the yeah. big triumphant moment where Batman saves Chase Meridian. 
He saves Chase Meridian, and then the drama is, is he going to save Dick or not? Mm. You you honestly, you can't come away too surprised with the idea that Joel Schumacher was actually more invested in the romance between Batman and Robin. Yeah. That actually putting those two together so that they could run at the camera in silhouette at the end was actually the thing this movie was really wanting to aim for. Sure, there'll be a thing with the girl for love interest, blah, 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 blah. But actually what I want to do is put those two guys together. See, it is actually yeah. this film that should have been called Batman and Robin. Yeah. Because <laughs> that is what this Well, is except about. that gives Batman away the third isn't act. It's about yeah. Batman and Robin. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. They're just technically in it. Yeah. It's just a cast roster. What would you call that one? Uh, Batman and Robin ba- and Batgirl. <laughs> I'd call it well, no, uh, Oxbridge Academy. I would I would call it Batman Forever just because it's the last film in the franchise and it turned out that would title would be very wrong. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Um, is is there anything else we need to hit on before we move on? I, it's it's hard to come away with like kind of like um an overarching like cogent take on this movie. It is just there's a lot of things going on. Well, most. Most of them don't work, but there are moments of enjoyment. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say like a third of the movie works, all as much as a third of the movie actually works, and a lot of the rest of it isn't offensive in the things that it does or tries to do. <laughs> yeah, that's so... it. Even it's, it's terribleness. You're kind of watching it and going. Oh, this is terrible. You're not getting angry by anything in it. I no, I, th- I think. Well, as, it's I just think as well, mediocrity. The stuff, that, it, isn't the, it? The, the stuff that, that I find, aside from Val Kilmer and Tommy Lee Jones's performances, which I think are are both wretched. Um, I think the thing, mostly the things it does badly, are stupid plot things, and it's the kind of film. And I don't mean superhero film. I mean specifically, it's a it's a film <laughs> where just normal rules of how things work don't apply. It's what you were saying before about yeah. how Akiva Gale Goldsmith strips the screenplay. Stuff happens because it's meant to happen. And if you're trying to analyse you know, a, f- a good film properly, then it doing some of those stupid things would be a major criticism. But this is a film that is not setting out to make coherent sense. So... Um, I think there's a thing with, with Goldsman where technically... There is an answer in almost everything that we can complain about plot-wise. There is a line of dialogue that fudges an explanation to justify doing the thing that it does. There's a lot of papering over the cracks. The problem is there isn't much wall there. So, Andrew, I want, I want to ask you this. You referred to Kevin Goldsman as effectively like your screenwriting nemesis. Oh, he's breaking my heart. You know what? You know what? I'm... I'm embittered because of the Dark Tower. If it wasn't because of the Dark, uh, he would just be that that because unf- he's also weirdly the guy responsible for the West Wing existing. He's the guy that sat opposite Aaron Sorkin and said, "You know what would make a good movie? The American President that you already wrote, but uh, like, sorry, you know what would make a good TV series? The American President that you already wrote, but like every week. That's a great pitch. He's he's." He's clearly got something, and there are movies he's been involved with that I I like for various reasons. We, you guys, have talked about Constantine before, um, and he's involved with that. But he took the Dark Tower. He took. <laughs> I don't get me wrong. Like all of, most of these other movies, 
it's not that they're bad, it's mostly just that they're mediocre. If you want to read Asimov and say, you know what it should really be about though, is like a big robot takedown sequence, and we should just do like a, a kind of generic detective story before that. If you read Asimov and that's the thing you take from <laughs> what to do, you haven't understood it. And it feels like that's what he does with source material, is he gets hold of source material and doesn't grasp it, but knows how to technically glom it onto a totally standard movie structure. This movie has a series of totally standard structures. The villain rise because he has an origin story and then vendetta against the hero and blah, blah, blah. These are all really straightforward straight lines. But he's not interested in the things. Blah, 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 blah. Could, but yeah, could God. You, could, you, could you edit his scripts? I mean, I, I'll do anything for anybody for a buck. Um, <laughs> but do, do, you a, think, do you think... He'll never hire me after this podcast. <laughs> I guess the question I'm asking, like, given that... Like, given that, like you say, it, it all technically functions and that this is clearly, he's not, he's not writing bad scripts from his point of view. He's achieving what he's setting out to do. Absolutely. Look, he's getting financed and funded and produced and made and getting box office success. I, it would be churlish to dismiss him as simply someone who doesn't know what he's doing. Mm. He blatantly knows what he's doing. He's blatantly a very professional professional. Um, but at the same time, every time he gets hold of a property that I think is any good at all, and I'm not—I don't want to get all Last Jedi about this—but <laughs> he—he doesn't seem to get it. The extraordinary failure of the Dark Tower, and again, yeah. that really—they literally give a destiny story. Oh, here's the kid who could change all the worlds and do the thing, and it wastes Idris Elba in a part that he—Idris <laughs> Elba would is. Such perfect casting. Yeah. But it, I said this on Twitter before. It is like having Sean Connery and then making Die Another Day. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's such a bizarre movie, though, because, uh, I mean, uh, Andrew, I, I think we hold the Dark Tower series in uh, like a oh. similar affection. Um, yes. I, I, I adore those books. Um, I, I mean, I love Stephen King in general, but those, yeah. those series of novels and, Choosing to take inspiration from the novels that he did choose to, excising some of the characters from it who, if you're trying to, well, that's I I don't know whether they were trying to build a franchise, but they were definitely trying to because they already had the TV series ready to go. I know, but uh, then conceptually, but then the third act of this movie does not suggest that. No, no, no. But the the thing is, they were just the TV series is going to be Roland's backstory, so he could be played by a cheaper, younger actor. Like it, it, it was. In theory, it was going to drive towards a whole thing. But then somewhere along the line, it just became, look, let's do a completely linear hero rescues thing fantasy plot in the most sort of weirdly 80s. It's like the Masters of the Universe movie. Like, it's such an odd... You know what would be fun is if we if we bring the gunslinger to the real world for a significant chunk of this and hang. he's got a kid to hang around with and they're both too earnest. Well, no, if they're both too earnest, that's not interesting. Mm. He he takes a completely normal blog bog standard lazy uninteresting structure and then plucks from the books whatever bits plug into that structure. Now I'm certain that wasn't the intention. Nobody sits there and says I want to take a completely generic sh- shape and then just let's call this the Dark Tower and I'll just find whatever bits are in these seven or eight books and shove them in. But that's what you ended up with. But I should we should say anyone who saw that movie and was like, well, I, I've never got any need to read those books. It, oh. it doesn't have anything in common plot-wise. And in fact, the bits that it no. does take from the books 
aren't the good bits. So you can pretty much read like the Dark Tower series of eight novels it is now and kind of like oh, only you... occasionally stumble over something that seems memorable from the movies. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm, I'm aware I've derailed this into the Dark oh, no, Tower podcast yeah. and I could do hours on it. But if you go to go on to Medium and search for Tweet Notes, The Dark Tower, you can find my takedown of the movie at the time. Um, and I, remember... I say takedown. I don't, I don't write things as takedowns, but my deconstruction of why I'm so sad oh. about it. And I remember when that when the movie was announced, and I was like, I was like, I will. I tell you what, I will have faith in this movie if it if it starts off and he's got the horn in his hand. And anyone who has read the novels all the way For through now. will know that that like is is quite a yeah, major yeah. thing to do. And then they announced. Yeah, the movie's going to yeah. start and he's going to have the Horn of Eld. And I was like, holy shit, do they get it? Does Akiva Goldsman get it? And he, he didn't get it. <laughs> no, someone somewhere got it and they yeah. put that in the marketing more earnestly than they put it in the film. Yeah. Yeah. Seb, Dark Tower, did you watch it? No, never seen it. <laughs> this, is, this has been great fun for you for the last hour and a half. Did How long have we been talking about the Dark Tower now? <laughs> uh, right, well, Batman Forever... The only lesson to learn from Batman Forever is that this podcast should, in some instances, include the screenwriter in the possessory credit when it introduces <laughs> so-and-so's 1995 film. Yeah. Because sometimes it's too relevant not to. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, very early on in this podcast, I was told that it's bad form when you're talking about comics to just talk about the writer. And I was like, oh, yeah, so if I'm going to talk about the comics, I'll now introduce them. For a lot of the... it, The reason you don't is because a lot of these movies have... 14 writers. Oh, yeah. Credited. But, yeah, sometimes, you're right, Andrew, yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's hella relevant. Akiva Goldsman d- deserves equal blame, if not more of. Um, I just wanted to talk about just a couple of uh, appearances. Uh, this is, of course, the first comic book movie appearance of John Favreau. Um, who... Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, do- I-, I read that on the IMDb before I started watching the movie, but didn't spot him. He's in the scene. He's in the scene that's got Ed Begley Jr. in it, which I also find quite amusing. Oh. That it's Ed Begley Jr. playing Nigma's boss, and he's just—he's a random Wayne Enterprises lackey in the background. He, oh um, my god! And also, apparently, Bob's Muda um, of Andy Kaufman fame is oh uh, wow a, an electronics store owner. But I've got absolutely no idea what scene that oh. is. So was was <laughs> was Carrie was Carrie already researching I wouldn't Man on the so. Moon? That's or? very early for that. Um, yeah, five years before. No, I think that's too but early. I think it's a coincidence. It, it's too early for researching. It's not too early for... I was interested in that yeah, guy, yeah. guy and that world, and now I live in a world where I can actually make those mm. phone calls. Yeah. What, what's weird, actually, is just looking at um, looking on, on IMDb, that I, I remember seeing in the closing credits when I watched the film that both John Favreau and uh, Bob Zemuda are credited. Ed Begley Jr. is not credited, even though he's a speaking part. That has Wait, what? Role in the According to IMDb, which I'd have to check the film credits again, Ed Begley Jr. is not credited. <laughs> How oh, bizarre. we should also mention Dr. Burton, who works in uh, what I'm assuming oh. is Arkham, <laughs> who, is cl- subtle. who is clearly Tim Burton. <laughs> You know what? That's almost as subtle as in Batman and Robin how the deadly disease is named after the producer. <laughs> McGregor Syndrome. Which made it into comics recently. Oh, did it? There's a, there's a comic called uh, Batman White Knight, uh, the premise of which is that the Joker gets cured and becomes sane uh, and and become, runs politically on an anti-Batman campaign. 
Um, yeah, I've read some of, of this. Um, it's, 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 really, it's an interesting series. It's got its ups and downs. But one of the really interesting things about it is that the, the kind of possible future continuity that it's set in has loads of elements from the movies and is essentially... It's got some elements from uh, Nolan as well, but it's basically pretty much the future of the Burton Schumacher films with right. added um, Harley Quinn and various other characters, right, but right, right. but Mister Mister Freeze is in there, and and basically spoilers: uh, Alfred dies of McGregor syndrome. Um, Sorry, guys, I just need to jump in with some breaking news as we are recording this po- podcast. Jim Carrey to play Sonic the Hedgehog villain Doctor Robotnik. What the actual f? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? That's like. If you'd have told me that in like in the nineties, that's all my worlds colliding. It's still all my worlds colliding. What? That's not real. You're lying. You're making that's, that up. That's happening. I don't believe you. Um, it's on deadline apparently. Wow. Wait. So hang on. Is he play? Is do we He's mean playing or, or is is he voicing? No. This is, is it an animated? This is a this is, is a live action slash CGI. Oh, I hybrid. see. So he'll be a right. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh dear. Wow. Anyway, that's a, um, that's a, that's another derailment. Um, but, um, can, can, can I can I just confirm? I've just checked, and yes, there is no credit on the closing credits for Ed Begley Jr. Even though Jeepers, that's so bizarre. <laughs> it's very strange. Um, Seb, do you have a comic book recommendation on for, based on Batman Forever? I could give you loads here because I was I was reminding myself of just how many quite good comics there are that are about the Robin and Two Face dynamic. Um, so the one one that I alluded to before is uh, A Lonely Place of Dying, which actually does have Dick Grayson in it, but is predominantly about Tim Drake becoming Robin um, and has Two-Face as the kind of major villain in it. Um, it's 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 read very... Even though it didn't happen immediately after it, it's a really good one to read straight after you read Death in the Family because it's about dealing with the consequences of the death of Jason Todd. And basically, Tim Drake is a Batman fanboy who has figured out that Bruce Wayne is Batman um, and that he's gone insane because Jason Todd's dead and and that he needs a Robin basically. Um so that's really good. Uh, Robin Year 1 uh which is from the early 2000s. I think I've mentioned Batgirl Year 1 before and this is from the same creative team. Um and that's just an early years of Robin story Dick Grayson Robin story which again has Two-Face as the villain. Um there's probably other Robin and Two-Face stuff but if you want to read something with the Riddler in um Rather than the there's there's been he's been used quite a lot in recent stuff like uh, the Scott Snyder stuff like Zero Year and in Tom King's joke um, War of Jokes and Riddles which actually wasn't very good and kind of derailed Tom King's run for a little bit, but if you go back to uh, Dark Knight Dark City uh, which is from the late eighties uh, by Peter Milligan and Kieran Dwyer and um, that's that was a story that basically sort of took the Riddler. And took this character who'd been quite light and silly and said, what if he decided to kind of turn quite dark and serious? But it was it's it's doing that before comics did that with everything. So it, it kind of gets away with it. And it sets up a lot of stuff that's in Grant Morrison's Batman run. And one final thing, which is the main thing I want to recommend from this, because it is one of my favourite single issues of uh, a comic ever, uh, which is Secret Origin Special Number. And I can't remember the number. I'm just going to pull it off the shelf here from behind. Um, yeah it is in fact no it's secret origin special number one from 1989 and it's an anthology issue uh, about three batman villains Uh, so it's got three short stories uh, with different creative teams 
uh, with a kind of uh, a framing device around it. The framing device is that a TV crew are making a documentary about some of the supervillains in Gotham City. Uh, so there's one about the Penguin, one about Two-Face, and one about the Riddler. Um, the framing device, I think, is written by Neil Gaiman, but crucially, the Riddler story is written by Neil Gaiman. It's called When is a Door? It's just a little, I think it's like six or eight page story. And it is honestly one of my absolute favourite comic stories ever, full stop. The, 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 the Two-Face and Penguin ones are very good as well, but the Riddler story that's in that by, by Neil Gaiman um, is just wonderful. And I actually, I, I my, my copy of the special is signed by Neil Gaiman. And when I got it signed by him, he said that... Um, there's a he's got a page from that that's like the only page of original art from any of the comics that he's ever done that he's bought because he really he's really fond of it as well so uh, that is very worth tracking down and reading it's it's yeah tremendous <laughs> excellent i would i would recommend watching the two part episode of batman the animated series uh, robin's reckoning which is um which kind of has flashbacks to dick's origin and apparently straight up uh, like adapts his introduction from Detective Comics back in 1940. Hmm. Um, and it won an Emmy, that episode in particular. It's very good. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, but let's we'll move on from Batman Forever now. Um, listeners, uh, you know, regular listeners will notice that we didn't have a minisode last week. Uh, so the pitch is just going to roll over onto the next episode. Um and also, I came up with one for this, and I didn't think it was very good when I actually got to it. So I'm just going to ignore it. And yeah, the, the, <laughs> that will that will roll over to the next minisode. Uh, we does, just we... does Andrew get to join in with the one from Men in Black and send us in something as well? Absolutely, if he wants to. Can't remember what it was. What was it? Oh, I thought you were saying it was. I don't know. I thought you were saying it was rolling over. Oh, it will roll over, but to the to the next minisode. Okay, I, 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 I haven't I haven't it... listened to the end of that episode yet, so I don't know what it was. <laughs> no, and I've, it was. We're doing was... really well here. On, Two weeks ago, this, this is going great. Yes. Andrew, you listened more recently than I did. I know, and I can't remember either. <laughs> what do you want? I am in a sweat box right now in the middle of the night. Look, you. Oh, don't... I know what it was. It was. Um, it was. Uh, pitch me an adaptation of another comic that I didn't realize was a Marvel comic. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, could, I, could, yeah, I can't do anything with that. No, yeah. I think you should tell us the Batman one because I think part of the fun for the listeners is surely coming up with their own. So even if you, even if we're not going to play, which I, okay. I will anyway, you, you need to tell us what the what the pitch for. Well, so this was. is this was partly inspired by us talking about Wonder Woman uh, on the la- on the last main podcast, um, and and then inspired by this as well because because this is so inspired by Batman or it has the Batman sixty six inspiration. And because Wonder Woman is being called Wonder Woman 1984, and I said on that podcast, I think I would watch Wonder Woman 2367 in a heartbeat. So I wanted just a Batman movie with a year in the title that wasn't 66. And I just thought that that would be very interesting to do, given that all of the Batman movies seem to partly exist out of time anyway. Mm. So (laughs) pitch me a Batman movie with a year in the title, as long as it's not 1966. Okay. Oh, I like that. Well... Hey, maybe I was onto a winner the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe it could cross over with Wonder Woman 2367, which I'm still, I think, that's the way for that franchise to go. (laughs) Deep into the future, where all of the rest of the DCEU is dead. Um, That's it for this week's podcast, though. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much for, for joining us again. Not at all. We will have to, we'll have to get you back on sooner this time rather than. Rather, rather than after, it's probably it's probably been 
a year and a half, maybe two years. God, has it really? Yeah, it's it been a while. Been. Uh, well, yeah, we'll we'll definitely have to uh, reduce the gap next time, um, and see if we've got anything left for you to still talk about. I'm I'm I would be disappointed that I can't do V for Vendetta, except I can't wait to listen to <laughs> James and Seb yeah. hash that out. We had that to feels we like do that one in person. <laughs> we had to. We had yeah. to. Uh, Andrew, we we we. So what we do of all I guess say what g- give us a list of films that you'd like to talk about and we can f- kind of figure out where that where we might be able to fit that in one of those into the schedule and andrew said oh i'd be interested in v vendetta because i've got a pretty like pretty good take on that movie and i went to seven james and they both went oh no but we need to that's we've been <laughs> we've personal. been we've been saving that yeah. that is that one that would, needs to would, take place in like a boxing ring yeah you'd very really... much like to hear your take and if you want to if you want to record something we'll stick out as a minisode after <laughs> feel free because i would I I honestly can't I can... in any other circumstance i totally would have liked to have had you on as a guest i that. cannot imagine saying in anything anything as interesting about that movie than you two are going to hash out together <laughs> And I will just act as a, a, a mediator of sorts. Yes, you referee. Yeah. That's the way to do and it. Sit and sit on the fence all the, all the <laughs> way through the episode. Uh, you never know, though. I haven't seen that movie in quite a while. I, I used to think, it's okay. I mean, when I was, when I was like 13, 14, I, I saw it at the cinema. I was like, no, that's, that was cool. That was really cool because they did like bullet time, but this time they had knives. <laughs> and how's that not cool? Bullet time, but with knives. Ah, what a time to be alive. Um, but yeah, so Andrew, thanks thanks for joining us. Is there anything, you've already plugged one of your sets of tweet notes, but oh, there are know. there are a lot of tweet notes that you could plug. God, I do, I do bang on, don't I? <laughs> um, yes, if you, I mean, people can find me on Twitter as Elardent. That's Elard, my surname with E-N-T at the end. Um, I still am doing the tweet notes. So recently I've done things like uh, Infinity War and Solo uh, and Deadpool 2. So stuff you've already heard these guys talk about, actually, but it's fine. Um, I, I but like also now that. When I see like kind of quite well known and, and reputable writers of, of good things sending you requests on Twitter to go, have you done tweet notes on so-and-so? Are you going to do tweet notes on this? It always it's it's awfully, it's horribly flattering, isn't it? Oh, it's so, but now I feel like responsible. I'm like, I've got an audience of, like you shouldn't prioritise certain audience members over other ones. That's the problem is now I feel like, no, 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 but they're reading. I have to, I have to impress them. Um, but yeah, so on El Ardent on Twitter, and in fact now all of my tweet notes archive since Storyfy shut down, I have moved it all to Medium and everything is going up on Medium. So uh, on Medium, I'm also El Ardent. But if you do a search on there for tweet notes, thankfully no one else is calling whatever they talk about that. So usually it's just my load of stuff that comes up. Amazing. I've always pronounced it as El Ardent. I didn't know it was. Yeah, I know, I know. And it all came out of a guy on, on God, on the Red Dwarf forum back in the day who who came up with the word El Ardent, as in <laughs> someone who is ardent about things in fandom. Um, so desperate for a Twitter handle, I grabbed for this. And now every six weeks or so I have to explain to somebody else that no that's not where it came but this is where we are now. Um, and of course you can andrewellard.com if you're stupid enough to have a script and want notes on a script um, it should be said on the on the tweet notes they're excellent and I, I find myself just retweeting them all the time but also because you tend to do them like normally a couple of weeks after a movie's come out it's mm-hmm. uh, you've had time to kind of like 
have a let the film settle you know think about it for a bit longer and i normally find myself like waiting for your tweet notes then reading through them like what i wonder if andrew agreed with me on that point and like oh he did good i feel vindicated and then (laughs) oh but no look he's he's made that point and that's really clever and that brings together all those other three threads that we were talking about but when we did it on the podcast we didn't put them together and oh, i want to go back and re-record it so that I'm, that is I've what it does been, to me. <laughs> I've never been more flattered, I don't think, than when Seb got to Guardians of the Galaxy and said, "Oh, Andrew, I said it was about the frogs." <laughs> oh, that is. I think that's. I think that's your finest work. I'm not. I, yeah, I completely agree. I may never top that in my lifetime. Because oh, you are so we right. We haven't. We must have mentioned it in relation, but we haven't done a Guardians episode yet. Oh yeah, so it must have come up in relation. We well, we've done Guardians. The, we've done Guardians. We've done Guardians two. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Guardians two live when it was. When it was out, but yeah, God, that's yeah. We've only got uh, two previously released MCU films yeah. left to do now. Yeah, maybe that's what we get you back for, Andrew. <laughs> oh well, hey, we get you back for the frogs. Oh, that would be. F- oh, there you go. I could. Well, that's easy because I can just read from the, the tweet notes <laughs> and not actually have an original thought. That would save me a lot of a lot of brain power. I mean, if you don't come on, we'll probably read from your tweet notes. Anyway. <laughs> oh, well, then why would I bother showing up? Why would I lock myself in yet another hot room with a microphone for oh, several God, hours yeah. doing this kind of nonsense instead of just letting you read it and then take the credit at the end? The, the weather right, right now is to- That's true. absolutely torturous. One of the reasons we didn't record the mini-sode is because I have been slowly dying of hay fever over the last week. Oh, you poor boy. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I don't think my voice is quite recovered. I woke up one day and my throat had just swollen up to a ridiculous extent uh, <laughs> through the through the just agony of the, the pollen had destroyed me for 48 hours previously and my body just went, no, that's enough. You're not going outside today. Not, not having it. <laughs> and yes, and now it is ve- it's very hot despite being half 11 at night as we're finishing recording this. Um, and it's still, I would say, conservatively hotter than the sun. Yes. Because the windows are closed and the fans are off because we're recording a podcast. Yeah. The sacrifices we make for you listeners. Not yeah. only have we talked about Batman Forever for two hours, we've done it whilst hot and irritable. <laughs> By the way, we also watched Batman Forever for two hours. Yes. <laughs> but that is it for this week's show. Um, if you if you enjoy the show, then subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, um, Player FM, Spotify, Anywhere you like, really. We're pretty much everywhere. And you can also support us on Patreon uh, at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. There's been uh, little bits and pieces of bonus content going up there recently. And Seb, I believe we've got a couple of people to thank. Yes, I'm going to do the James business this time because he's not here. Thank you to James Minor and Christopher Harper for backing us both on there. Um, yeah, we should, by the time this comes out, we should have finally released some of the, the offcuts of bonus audio um, that... that that we've done from previous episodes and talked about. Uh, also, there's uh, we will be due, or we are due to do another bonus episode of the of the reward tier ones. So we we will get to that at some point. But it's not my responsibility because I did mine. So shout at um, James and Joe on Twitter if if you want to hear theirs. Um, I'd also yeah, I've, I, you you forced me to do it in the Patreon section because you skipped on to the ending. But I just want to give a quick plug to something as well, which again should be out uh, by the time. Um, this episode is released. Yeah, so I've, I've recorded uh, an episode of uh, for the second series, the upcoming second series of a podcast called Room 404, uh, which is basically a podcast that's a bit like the original format of Room 101, but it's based entirely around pop culture things. Um, so I've selected various things to try and get put into Room 404, uh, one of which involves talking about stuff that 
might be familiar to those of you who listen to this podcast. But hopefully I haven't just gone for the really obvious way of talking about this particular director. Um, <laughs> so uh, that should have already come out by the time this comes out. Um, you can find the podcast at Room404Pod on Twitter. Um, and I think it'll be on iTunes and various other podcast places. Uh, and I'll have retweeted it probably. So uh, give that a listen because it was good fun to do. Amazing. Um, and if, but if you want to hear more episodes of this show, you can do that at cinematicuniverse.com and get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter, at cine underscore verse, or send us an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. And we do tend to get back to people. So if you've got questions for us, throw them our way. Uh, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. There used to be a grey tower alone on the sea. dark side of me Love remains a drug that's high enough to feel But did you know that when it snows my eyes become large and the light that you shine can't be seen Baby, I can bring you to a kiss from a rose on the grave Ooh, the more I get I feel stranger The Screenslaver interrupts this for an important announcement. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with The Incredibles 2. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And... Don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.